friends, it's Friday. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us. Ryan Jesperson here alongside Uncle Samuel G. Brooks. Uncle That's Sam. Correct. Yeah. Nobody, uh, I mean, with, with respect to our guests that are coming up, we've got a great show coming up. Uh, the listening and viewing audience today will be most interested to know if your sister safely and without incident delivered a beautiful baby, the first of the next generation to the clan. Uh, can confirm. Uh, we have a we have a healthy baby girl, uh, six pounds, 15 ounces. Don't know a name yet. Uh, I haven't even seen photos yet. My sister's a notoriously very private person. Yeah. So information will come as it comes. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a great video on, on my Twitter of me blowing the cork off a bottle of champagne yesterday. I, was, I was pretty excited. Well, how yeah. are you feeling about it? I mean, how does it did, does it did you wake up today feeling a little bit different as an uncle? I don't know if I felt I, I felt sort of a like a pressure release today. Like yesterday was very tense. Yesterday was a lot of waiting. So it was the day before because it's your sister. Exactly. And, and it's like and it's and again, the whole situation is weird. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I can't go and, and, and hug this new baby yet. And that sucks. But it's also just yeah, it's it's sort of life as usual. Um, I think it might feel a little bit more real when when I get to meet the baby, but mm. it's you know we still don't quite know when that is. So so no photos publicly released. No, nope. no name publicly released. These are still the very exciting early stages. Yeah, uh, and then you've got all weekend to kind of chill out. I've promised uh, we're going to leave you alone all weekend. We're going to let you revel in this as a family. So whatever you need to do, if you're going to be doing. Yeah, if you're going to be hiding inside from the cold, because this weekend is going to be a gajillion degrees below zero. No kidding. If you're watching uh, or tuning in, listening to this podcast from Western Canada, you know exactly what we're talking about. Great show coming up in just a few moments. Johnny Wakefield, uh, Post Media reporter, he's justice reporter for the Edmonton Journal. Edmonton Sun has been focusing on that 2017 Edmonton terror attack. You remember that. Uh, the U-Haul attack. Uh, Johnny's uh, released a long-form piece in the paper today. You can check it out. He's going to take us into it, the process of covering a story like this that still hasn't found resolution in the courts. It's going to be an interesting one. Jeremy Klazis is coming back. He's editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. He took issue uh, with some of our reporting yesterday, and uh, I said, well, pal, I mean, instead of blowing me up on social media, instead of blowing up the... I said... Come on the show and talk about it. That's what we do. That's why we read audience emails like these ones I've got in front of me. One of them from Germany's Black Forest. Lisa wrote in. I appreciate that. We're going to get to that today. Uh, We've got one from Anne Marie that wrote in about an earlier segment we had this week. That's great. A roundtable today is going to talk about, you know, vaccine distribution, Canadian politics. Uh, We want to talk about the Proud Boys uh, classified as a terror group in Canada. Plus, we're going to talk about uh, the farmers protests that are that continue in India. As a matter of fact, they're ramping up. We'll get some good insight on that. And of course, it's Friday. That means uh, the return of a little something we do called trash talk. That's how we'll wrap up our show today. And um, I'm not annoyed with you, real talkers. I'm not annoyed with you. Uh, But you continue to make our jobs increasingly difficult as we try to narrow down hundreds of incredible emails down to three or four or five. I mean, when we initially launched Trash Talk in the conceptual stages of this show before the show had a name, Sam, uh, when you and I were still just just gathering over braised beef, short rib and hollandaise sauce over duck fat roasted potatoes. Uh, that one glorious morning when you and I shared breakfast, got to know each other a little bit and conceptualized the show. We thought that Trash Talk would be a good way for listeners and viewers to blow off steam for 60 to 90 seconds. Yeah. 
That's originally what we thought. It was going to be short and punchy and short, sweet. Short like and everything punchy. was going to be like one sentence yeah. and crumple the paper and toss it. But I can't do it. Nope. Because people like Wendy and Bar- I'm going to spoil this. I'm going to let you know if your email's coming up. Like Wendy and Barb and Alex and Kathy and Lisa and Scott are writing in. Scott is going to like uh, I'm reading Scott's last. Uh, I'm reading Scott's last because it's very divisive. Scott, you know what I'm talking about. He's going to divide real talk nation. He's going to divide this community. And then I'm going to just wipe my hands of it and sign off for the weekend. And hopefully the dust will settle so you can look forward to Scott. Scott is anchoring trash talk today. He'll be wrapping it up. Of course, this whole thing, this show is made possible with our sponsors, including our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin. Well, I was talking to my pal Graham duty yesterday. He's, he's whipping me into shape. Graham Graham's training me and, and turns out we've got something in common. We've got nothing in common with regards to physical strength, body mass index, anything like that. BMI, Graham and I are miles apart. But our perspectives align on crypto. We're both very curious about it. We're intrigued. We're trying to learn more. So Graham's saying to me, so what's the deal with Bitcoin? Well, what do they like to deal with? I said, I put down the kettlebell. I said, let me tell you about Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin. Well, does not make me feel stupid when I ask them very basic questions about crypto. As far as I'm concerned, that's what 95% of people care about. Now, if you're way up high level and you, you get all the things that the rest of us don't get, they can answer those questions for you too, uh, but they can enter you in at a level where you feel comfortable. That's what it's all about when it comes to stuff like this. You can find them, of course, online by checking out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. They're proudly headquartered in Alberta, 30 ATM, or no, rather locations across uh, Canada, uh, Bitcoin ATMs at Bitcoin Well. All right, Sam, let's go. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. If you check out uh, the Edmonton Journal online this morning, you're going to see last night in September, the lingering questions behind the 2017 Edmonton terror attack. It's long form journalism by our lead off guest this morning. He's the justice reporter for the journal, the Edmonton Sun for Post Media here in Alberta. Johnny Wakefield making his real talk debut. My man, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Johnny, I get to use my sign. There you go, pal. We got you covered. Oof. It's a good thing. I hope you didn't Thank know. You. I hope you didn't. I'm glad you, ha- I'm glad you have that. <laughs> I hope you didn't. I hope you didn't open with your most important statement of all time, or we would have missed it. I was just saying, welcome uh, to the show. I've, com- I've completely forgotten. No, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Johnny. Uh, this is. I mean, this is a story where people are going to say. Uh, gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago that that night. The, the Edmonton football team was playing uh, at, at uh, you know, Commonwealth Stadium uh, when all of a sudden the story across the city, across the province and, and even internationally had nothing to do with football as a police officer was attacked. Uh, nobody knew the background. Nobody knew the circumstance. And then the next thing you knew, downtown Edmonton was under attack. For those that aren't familiar with this story, those that are listening to this podcast from halfway around the world, why don't we start by having you bring us up to speed on the story itself? Yeah, like you said, I mean, it was a really shocking night. I think a lot of people in Edmonton, it was kind of one of those nights where you remember where you were. And it all begins around uh, 8 p.m. about a half a kilometer from Commonwealth Stadium uh, where the Edmonton football team was playing and an officer named Mike Chernick was struck by a car um, and then attacked by a man with a knife. Um, there's video of this. It's really 
scary to watch, but they struggle for about 30 seconds. And then Chernick manages to prevent the person from getting his gun and shakes him off. And then this person who attacked him disappeared into the night. And then several hours later, uh, the attacker shows up behind the wheel of a U-Haul about two kilometers from where the first attack took place. He somehow disappears for a couple of hours, despite the fact that police have a dragnet around basically the entire city. And he hands his license over to the officer at the check stop and then suddenly just takes off, uh, goes back downtown uh, over the Dawson Bridge and then speeds down Jasper Avenue uh, after 11 p.m. on a Saturday. Uh, he's being chased by probably about a dozen police cars at that point, hits two people outside of the Pint on 109, turns into an alley, and then uh, turns back onto Jasper, hits two more pedestrians, and then seconds later, a police vehicle knocks the U-Haul over and they arrest him. And that last part, and probably part of my interest in this case, um, that, that last part happened about five or six blocks from where I lived at the time. And I was sitting at home. I had been watching a Vancouver Canucks preseason game, sadly. And um, at some point, we had just kind of heard from work that, hey, something was happening and we might need to call you in. Um, and then at around 11.30, we see just this insane mass of sirens screaming maybe six blocks down 100 avenue and we just hear a loud bang which we later learned was a flash bang uh and at that point i just kind of said okay i should probably go towards that and see what's happening that was one of the uh that what you're describing there to me is one of the most remarkable elements of this story uh, that police after after whichever officer it was who deserves all the credit in the world used a police vehicle, uh, used their training uh, to be able to tip this U-Haul truck on its side. Uh, officers gained entry, as I understand it, to the truck through either the front windshield or that that driver's side. They they deployed a what do they call it, like sort of that shock grenade or whatever they call it, that flashbang uh, to use civilian technology uh, terminology, uh, that sort of flashbang. They, they deployed a taser, but no shots fired nobody killed uh to me was was remarkable so this finds its way into the courts ultimately uh mr shreef is sentenced uh he's he's convicted he's sentenced i know people have had mixed feelings about that about the sentence itself about about you know whether it was appropriate for somebody trying to kill a police officer etc we're now three four years after the fact um what prompted you to look back onto this story and to go long form into it like you have um i think it was just kind of this big like traumatic event in the life of the city. And um, we never really got the full story of what happened or who this guy was. Um, there was a three to four week trial, but even then we didn't really get a whole lot of answers in terms of why this guy did what he did. And I know some people will say, look, he had an ISIS flag in his vehicle. He did things that ISIS attacks do. And I mean, that is true, but I think there are a lot of things about this case that kind of muddy the waters a bit. Well, take us into it. What what struck you is, I mean, you know, your your report is is extensive. Um, what did you learn through the process uh, of putting this feature together that maybe you didn't know before? 
Well, I mean, maybe it's best to sort of talk about some of the, the weird things that complicate this story, and then I can talk a bit about sort of the new info in here. So, I mean, the night that this happened, there was a very somber police press conference at like 3 a.m. or something in the atrium at UPS headquarters, and they called this uh, acts of terrorism, and they said it was being investigated as a, as a terror attack. Um, Sharif was never charged with terrorism at the end of the day, and there are maybe a couple different explanations for why that happened. The other thing is that his behavior at the trial was completely bizarre. Um, at first, it, he had lawyers. It seemed like he had an intention of defending himself. But then in March 2019, he fired his lawyers and went through this trial without any legal representation. He didn't do anything to defend himself, but kind of dragged everyone through this process. Uh, he didn't utter, utter a single, single word in front of the jury. Um, and then there are just some things that happened during the, I get into this in the piece, but there are some things that happened both before and after uh, the incident that his decision-making is just kind of odd. Um, and then the fourth thing I would say is that we still really don't know what role mental health played in all of this. This person had two psychiatric reports uh, done on him after this happened, but for a bunch of different reasons, those will probably never be made public. Um, so those were kind of some of the weird question marks that continue to hang over this case. What I managed to find out in the year, this was supposed to sort of be a piece that would run on the year anniversary of him being sentenced, but um, the coronavirus pandemic kind of got in the way. Um, but um, this, this, the idea was that we would sort of take a year and try to figure out everything else we could about this case, because I mean, even in the trial, they said, we may never know why this guy did this. Um, one of the things I was able to get was a, a search warrant for his house and his vehicles, which had been sealed during the court process. It wasn't accessible to the public until last summer. And that kind of at least paints a little bit of a picture of what police found in his home and gives us kind of maybe more of a glimpse into what his life was like. Um, some of the things that were seized from his house, it's just, it's very strange. He lived in an apartment over by Kingsway and uh, they found an additional ISIS flag there as well as something just described as two ISIS t-shirts. I don't know what those are. All we get is the single line describing what the item is. And then there was also a bunch of um, like art supplies, painting supplies, and all the indications are that these flags were homemade. And uh, so you have things that were seized terrorist paraphernalia, like um, you know a bowl with white paint in it, or spray cans, dowels, paintbrushes, that sort of thing. And another little weird wrinkle with all of this. Hang on, um, hang on a second. What 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 does white paint and paintbrushes have to do with anything? What am I missing? Well, we think that we we think that we think the flags were homemade by all indications. You know, these these things because which they would been used to make the flag. Which would imply what that that he was a copycat, that he was not officially affiliated, or I mean, everything. If you look at terror attacks, I mean, for the for the most part, everything's homemade, including the bombs, including that. Right? I mean, the, the so what what would be the significance of that? I mean, it just we didn't know where the flags came from. That was kind of a question. Oh. But like you said, I mean, you could infer like he didn't get these off of. Betsy or what have you. But I mean, it, it sort of gives a sense of what his, what he was doing, what his life was like. The fact that there was, he had 
he had taken the time to do this. Um, and he had made several different variations, it looks like. And then the detail that there were, he appears to have made t-shirts sort of of this flag. And again, I don't know what to do with that information. It strikes me as kind of odd. I put this to, to one of the terrorism experts. I, I interviewed about this, who was kind of like a ISIS t-shirts. I mean, that sounds like a little bit juvenile almost. Um, Johnny, what did so, you, I mean, what did the, just, when you talked to those terrorism experts, what did they tell you? I mean, now in retrospect, looking back on this again, admittedly, as you've acknowledged with, with relatively limited information still available to the public, what did the experts have to say about the significance of this attack? Like a lot of, a lot of civilians, a lot of, 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 you know, everyday folks that are, that'll see a story like this will wonder, was he working with six other people, you know, three of whom still live in the city and might be planning to do something like this next week? I mean, people may have lingering questions about where he may have gained help or training or motivation or inspiration. You know what I'm saying? What, what did the experts tell you? Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the big questions hanging over this. It, police had said that there was no indication initially that there were other people who had known about this, but how they know that is kind of unclear. I mean, one thing that came up before the trial was um, Chief Rod Connect, who was the chief at the time. Um, when he said this, he was no longer chief, but he had gone to Australia and spoke at a counter-terror conference where he said that Sharif had an encrypted device that they couldn't access. And my understanding of that is that's just a phone. They couldn't get into his phone, so they don't know sort of if he'd communicated with anyone about this. The other interesting thing about the search warrant is they didn't, in the warrant, you have to lay out what you expect to find so that a judge will give you access to someone's house. You have to lay out your evidence. And they had said, look, we think we're going to find electronic devices, uh, evidence that he had communicated with other people about this and researched this. But if they did find anything like that, in either his home or his vehicle. We don't know that. The warrant that I got in the list of items that they see is there's no mention of like a computer uh, or a cell phone. We know they did seize a cell phone, but um, like there's there's no indication in there that they did find anything like that. And all indications are that this person did this on his own, even though, um, like I said, Rod Connect has suggested that maybe he did have communication or done some huh. research but they just couldn't find that rod connect yeah now uh edmonton's former police uh police chief uh johnny wakefield uh, a crime reporter journalist for post media here in alberta with the edmonton journal edmonton sun edmonton journals where you can read this story uh, johnny it's i mean i you know what i love i just love the fact that you were able to dive into this and really get into the story it'll, it'll take a few minutes for people to read but um, I read it start to finish, and, it, and it's fascinating work that you've done. Still, though, I mean, as is often the case with the journalistic exercise, many questions remain, um, including some that, that you've prompted us to ask as a result of the information you've dug up. Thanks for making time for us this morning to get into this. Thank you, Ryan. You bet. Uh, make sure you check that out. You can find the story at edmontonjournal.com. Again, that's Johnny Wakefield. You can follow him on Twitter. Jeremy Clazes is coming up in just a moment. We're about uh, 15 minutes away from our Friday roundtable. We wanted to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy is ready to help you imagine a new era, a new age on how you're getting your energy, how you're heating or how you're lighting up your home, your business, how you're cutting down on your bills, how you're 
helping the planet. It's what they do professionally in BC and Alberta with their journeyman installers. They're Tesla certified. And the thing I love most about Kubi, well, I love a lot of things about Kubi. You get to know them, the team behind them, a bunch of beauties, but they know what is going to deter people from putting in solar. Number one, people have questions about cost. They want to talk to you about that. They want to help you understand about some of the subsidies that are available. And number two, the hassle around the paperwork and the permits and the applications. They do it all for you. So you can check them out online. Uh, Make sure you follow the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you're going to find the team at Dairy Queen. The team at Dairy Queen wants to make sure that that you're, you're, you're far out of trouble on Valentine's Day this year. As a matter of fact, they want to make sure that you are favored on Valentine's Day because you've nailed the gift, including the Valentine's Day Cupid cake. And at the six locations, Dairy Queen in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, they've got that Cupid cake for $16.49 from now all the way through to Valentine's Day. It's a two-person shareable blizzard cake Uh huh. in red velvet, Choco Cherry Love, or Oreo. It's available for a limited time, and make sure you tell them you're a real talker, and they're going to make sure that they look after you. Well, yesterday we had a a conversation about disappearing headlines. Um, If you caught it, you know that major newspapers across the country, including the Toronto Star, Post Media Papers from coast to coast, including the Edmonton Journal, rolled out front pages like this. They were blank. And they're calling on the federal government. They're calling on Canadians to realize what's going to happen to news coverage, to journalism in Canada. If digital giants like Google and Facebook aren't reined in, if the playing field isn't equaled. We talked to John Hines, who is the CEO of News Media Canada. You can find that interview on our podcast. You can go check it out in our YouTube archive. Not everybody sees eye to eye with the arguments including our next guest, an independent publisher. Jeremy Clausus is editor-in-chief of Sprawl, uh, Sprawl Calgary at the Sprawl. Jeremy's a good friend of the show. Um, he's in our top 10 for uh, when it comes to um, the Zoom backgrounds that we've seen on the show. Uh, he's always got great stories on his Zoom backgrounds. But Jeremy, yesterday, uh, the reason we reached out to you, I saw you noting the story that we had covered And you said, I'd like to talk about this, but I'm going to have to try not to blow a gasket. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great talk segment. And so here you are. Welcome back to Real Talk. Why do you have to stop yourself from blowing a gasket, Jeremy? Let's not assume anything is obvious right now. All right. All right. Well, I mean, what we've seen is these big newspaper companies over the years uh, eviscerating local newsrooms. So, and particularly I'm talking about our two big uh, newspaper newsrooms in Alberta at the Edmonton Journal and the Calgary Herald. Uh, You know, there's been round after round of layoffs. There's been, as these layoffs are happening, obscene executive executive, uh, salaries. And so this has all been happening. And now there's a campaign to save local journalism uh, from these same newspaper companies. And and they're kind of casting themselves as, you know, these little Davids versus the Goliath of social media giants, uh, Facebook and Google. Um, and so they're, they're casting themselves as, you know, fighting for the free press. We're fighting for independent journalism and news is important. You need your local news. Well, 
I, to me, that's just laughable. I mean, like we even look in Alberta, like look at what happened in 2015 uh, at the Edmonton Journal. If you remember, uh, Post Media told the Edmonton Journal, told the local newsroom, you need to endorse Jim Prentice and the PCs. So the local newsroom is caught flat footed. They have to run this editorial. And and that's the model of journalism, right? This top down approach. And that's happened several times. Uh, same thing with Shear across the newspaper chain. All the newspapers had to endorse Andrew Shear. And so <laughs> for them to come out now and say, oh, yeah, you know, independent journalism, it's so important to me, that's just that's just laughable because they haven't been walking the talk. Now, the one thing I would say, and this is kind of an important distinction to make here, is that in these newsrooms that have been eviscerated, there are good journalists that are still doing good work, mm -hmm. good reporters. Like one we just talked the, to. Yeah, exactly. Like there's plenty of good journalis journalism still happening. The issue is these companies have basically strip mined these newsrooms uh, and 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 it's yeah, it, it's just laughable. Uh, Let me ask you, though, mind, Jeremy, I, to be fair, uh, do we need to talk about the chicken and the egg? Like when you say, you know, they've they've strip mined these newsrooms and there's been devastating layoffs and there have. I mean, you and I both have mm -hmm. many friends. I mean, I had I had two friends in particular, personal friends laid off just yesterday uh, in TV. Sure. Uh, and two personal friends laid off earlier this week in radio. I'm talking to one of them on the phone later today. He goes, so how, how, how'd you pull off real talk and how do we transition? And people, everyone's having to figure this out. Because this is an epidemic that's been happening in newsrooms for for probably at least 10 years. Uh, and mm -hmm. people would people would be shocked to, to see, you know, coverage at the, at the Alberta legislature or, uh, you know, I don't know what the press gallery looks like in Ottawa if it's been decimated as much. But politicians benefit because there are fewer and fewer experienced, courageous voices there covering these stories. So that is all true. And you're absolutely right. And there's big buildings that have entire floors that are dark now. Because they don't have the staff to fill them. I mean, you know, they're they're running, um, you know, content across Canada that's canned, and it's. I mean, the quality, the 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 thickness of the newspapers is down. I sound like I'm describing the apocalypse here, but well, the, it is for those of us in the news industry. It yeah. is, and 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 who suffers is the general public because the stories aren't being told, the accountability is not there, etc. But. You know, these these these, you know, if we had Paul Godfrey right now on, on the on the line um, sitting on his stack of uh, money uh, talking to us about why this was necessary, he would probably say, well, exactly. The advertising model's broken and the landscape's not even. And that's why we've had to lay off all these people. It, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, the there's an element of truth in this campaign, in this disappearing uh, headlines campaign, which is. Uh, Facebook and Google have a monopoly on the advertising market or uh, a duopoly, I guess, technically. Um, and, and, and the, the newspapers, newspapers are saying, you know, in the good old days, uh, that money was going into our newsroom. Those advertising dollars were going into our newsroom and funding this journalism. Um, and so, yeah, you kind of have these big players facing off these big newspaper companies versus these tech behemoths. And I think what the, where the trouble is, is what they're proposing, like they're proposing uh, what's called the Australian model, uh, which is backed by, you know, 
Robert Murdoch's News Corporation in Australia. And it basically would force uh, the big tech giants to negotiate with news companies and pay them for content, pay the news companies for uh, some of the content that social media companies uh, put online. And so, I mean, the question is, what will this really do? Like it will put a little bit of more money into the newspaper industry, but it won't fix the bigger problems. And so that's where I have trouble with them casting themselves as, you know, scrappy. They're almost casting themselves as like these scrappy little startups uh, fighting for the free press. And it's like, well, not really. I wish I could remember the name of the viewer yesterday uh, because I want to give them credit. So my apologies. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said and I didn't see the comment until after I talked to John Hines or I would have put it in front of them because it's a fair question. Um, it's harsh, but fair, which is OK in my books. And the, the viewer basically said, can you please ask your guest why it is government's job to bail him out for failing to adapt his business to the 21st century? Is that well, a fair <laughs> question? Is that fair framing? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I had a I had a riot uh, yesterday looking at the Calgary Sun front page here. Um the blank front page, because of course the sun chain, you know, is always railing against government intervention and always railing against, uh, you know, Ottawa meddling in the private industry. But now here they are calling for it. They're saying, this is unfair. We need the government to step in. So, uh, I, I, there's a, there's a very rich, rich irony in all that, that they, you know, after espousing all of this, uh, all these right-wing editorial viewpoints. Now they're saying, no, we need government. We need government uh, intervention here. It's only right. It's good for the country. It's good for the public good. Uh, so I get a kick out of that. The other thing I would challenge John Hines on, like in this letter that ran across, uh, you know, ran across the post media chain, ran across Torstar uh, in those papers, you know, he says all news companies are suffering. And that just flatly is not true. Like the sprawl is not suffering. We're growing. Uh, the same is true of other startups across Canada that are digital and that rely on, uh, you know, we rely on these social media platforms to reach our audiences. So <clears throat> real so, talk, <clears throat> real talk. Yeah. So it's it's I don't know. That was just my shameless it's, plug. That was a shameless plug. Jerry. I, uh, it's funny. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kim, we're, 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 you know, well, exactly, you and I are in different exactly. boats, but we're in the same lake. Uh, Kim wrote in and said, Ryan, you know, Jeremy, like Jeremy's crowdfunded too. You can become a sprawler. Kim says, I, I give five bucks a month to the sprawl. I give five bucks a month to real talk. I'm, I'm proud to say I've been a, I've been a sprawler uh, since, you know, I was a sprawler when I was working in traditional billion dollar company AM terrestrial radio, pal, because people believe in what you're doing. Where do you think that the entire industry is going? Like, what is what is journalism? I mean, we call it print journalism because it's what we're, you know, I mean, aside from sort of a special edition little thing that you do, you don't really do much print. You're online, obviously. But where does long form or investigative journalism go in the next five years, Jeremy? Because. I mean, you know, John would say it yesterday, if you talk to any publisher of any major paper in Canada, except for maybe the star and the globe, I don't know your opinion on they're they're giants still. Um, they're still targets for for advertisers, destinations for advertisers, I should say. Um, where do you think the trend goes over the next number of years? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what it comes down to, uh, and certainly this would be your case as well, it comes down to 
uh, trust and relationship with the audience. Uh, you know, for a long time, newspapers haven't had to necessarily build trust with the audience. You know, the, the, the important relationship was with ad dollars. Uh, and, and that model worked for a time. Um, but now it really is about you have to prove to your audience that what you're doing is worth, uh, you know, their $5 a month or whatever it is. Um, and so it's really, I think that's the future, which is this membership model where you're saying, hey, yeah, things are bleak in the news industry right now. We're losing journalist jobs. We're losing more independent voices on, you know, the corporate stations in the corporate newsrooms. But here we're doing something different and we want you to support it. Um, that is, a, it, that's a model that's relationship based. You have to listen to your audience. You have to have a relationship with them. And it's built on community. And so we're kind of losing Jeremy's signal a little bit, obviously. Um, but the point he's making is an important one. If he at least it at least it froze him on a very contemplative. But Jeremy, we can't really hear you, pal. But but you're fro you'll be thrilled to know that your jawline has never looked so strong. There we are. You're back live. The uh, zoom no. zoom zoom froze you on kind of like. You were kind of looking off into like it was you were stoic. It was very stoic. You would yeah. you would have been thrilled. It, you know, sometimes you get frozen like ah, with like a double chin, and you look, you know, but that you just absolutely nailed it. So well done. The philosopher's pose. The philosopher's pose. You uh, not you were making an important point though, and I and I hate that we had to interrupt it with being so frivolous. But but you were talking about trust with audience and restoring that, and that's so obviously important. Um, do you think the federal government, I mean, you know, Justin Trudeau, the federal government has recognized in past a need to try to support local journalism with that $600 million tax break plan that some qualified for and, and some others didn't. So it's it's certainly on their radar. Uh, but do you think do you see the federal government intervening in this context? I mean, you know, other countries have, have seen leadership. Australia has been taking steps, as John outlined yesterday. Mm hmm. Yeah, and the federal government has said they will do something along the lines of the Australian model. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what they do with that and how far they go. Um, I'm, I'm not opposed to the federal government supporting journalism. I know some journalists take a very principled stand against that. Um, in our case, we've actually taken, uh, we've received money last year from the Canada Periodical Fund. That means we can do more journalism. You know, that means we can grow our team. That's a good thing in my mind. That's a public good. I should also say we've received money from the Facebook Journalism pro Project specifically to grow our membership pro oh, program. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah. So, you've, so take, you've taken money from the dark side. Yes. <laughs> and the, and the, the, the conversation about who is the dark side is an interesting one because a lot of journalists look at it and say, taking federal dollars is the is the issue like journalists shouldn't do that i have more i'm more uncomfortable with taking money from facebook like to me that's more uh i that's the part that keeps me up at night but that said it means we can grow our team it means we can put more resources on alberta provincial politics so at the end of the day i'm like you know what uh this means we can do more and better journalism for albertans sure um, but yeah, all of us are here. We want funding. We want revenue. 
there's only so much to go around. And so, yeah, it's kind of a weird position we're in right now. But News Media Canada does not speak for the digital publishers, I would say. Uh, you can check out uh, Jeremy and his team. Their good work at sprawlcalgary.com. That's also where you can sign up to become a sprawler. Are these still available to to people that support you, or was this a special edition where uh, the run has ended and they'll have to wait for the next edition? Oh, the the print zine there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, those are still we still have those. So okay. if you sign up as a sprawl member, we pop one in the mail for you. It's great, and it's uh, and I like it. It's it's a beautifully laid out, very well done uh, series of essays, and and totally enjoy it. Jeremy, it's always great to hear your voice. Always appreciate your perspective as somebody that's making it happen and that's continuing to push out important journalism uh, that benefits everybody that that comes across it. Thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. You got it. That's Jeremy Klazis. He's editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Again, you can check him out at Sprawl Calgary. Uh, on the chatterbox, uh, we're going to be getting to our roundtable in just a second. Uh, Jeremiah says, you know, it's funny. The only peep I heard about that campaign, the blank front pages, was was on Real Talk. He said not a single one of my friends talked about it. So I wonder if they're... Jeremiah says, I wonder if that lame-ass campaign fell hilariously flat. It's Here's the thing with that. Uh, you know, I referenced Paul Godfrey... Um, I have nothing but disdain for that guy. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, like the well, Sam, because you've kind of. I mean, do you want to get personal for a second or no? Get personal, sir. Like yeah. when, when we talk about layoffs in newsrooms, you, nobody knows. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody knows more about it than you. Hundreds of people know about it, but but you've you've you know that's impacted you. Yeah, uh, on a on a big scale. Um, not not here where I'm working right now, but like in. Uh, what we all just sort of refer to as Black Tuesday, which was the the day in uh, I want to say 2015, when there was this massive, massive round of layoffs at Post Media. I remember um, uh, my my window was on the ground floor of the Journal building, so I got to watch literally like one by one people exiting the building with boxes of their stuff from their desks. Cutthroat. Oh my God. And it was just, you know, I, I, I was in a completely different division. So my job was safe and I knew that from the beginning of the day, but it was just this absolutely heartbreaking day. And, and even now, I mean, at the time that I worked there, you talk about empty newsrooms, like the, the journal has a five story building and at least three of those floors are completely empty. Well, I mean, if you if, you, if you're yeah. in Calgary, if you drive on the Deerfoot, I mean, the building I used to work out of the Calgary Herald yeah. building there. It's, they used to have the presses in that facility too, I right? Know. I yeah. used to go stand up. Um, I think our probably our roundtable's ready to go, right? And I've still got. So I don't want to talk too much, but I used to. See, Catherine O'Neill's joining us. She's a, a former uh, reporter, former journalist with the Globe and Mail, so she'll be able to talk about this too. But I used to in in my early days in media as a staffer at the Calgary Herald, I used to go stand on the the lookout. It was like a like a catwalk as the presses started rolling right around nine o'clock at night. And it was quite a, it was quite a feeling cause you'd, you know, I did some editing and layout work there. If I was lucky enough, I got to write a story or two and, uh, and, and then you would see these papers start to go. And it was just like in the movies, like the big presses yeah. would start and the floor would start to rumble. Say, and so I'd be, ever standing, been I'd be a- standing on this catwalk and it would start rumbling and the store, it would start moving and the glasses kind of moving on the, on the, where as we can look into it. And it was just such an amazing experience to see your work going to press now those days have changed and the paper's a third of the width and it's just i mean times have changed like they have in any business right talk to people that used to own blockbuster video stores times have changed people's consumption habits have changed business models have changed uh, wig with on the uh, chat says you know local newspapers keep propping up these you know pc and ucp types you know redford prentice kenny 
sheer. They'd sell more papers writing real stories. Uh, Mercedes says maybe if they focused on journalism, not just filling their pages with ads, they'd get more sympathy. Mercedes says if a paywalled site goes under, nothing of value is lost. Um, here's the thing, though. They've, they've got to find a way to pay their bills, and it's not an easy solution, to be sure. Now, what sucks about all this is that there are incredible journalists that continue to work. Right. This shows some of our revenue. It's, it's interesting what, you know, many of you support us on Patreon, as an example, and some of our revenue goes to support other journalism, including off the top of my head, Sprawl, um, New York Times, Globe and Mail. Like uh, we're happy to subscribe and we're happy to pay for the journalism that we use on this show. I wouldn't feel right about it if we were poaching people's work, putting it in front of you as though it was something that we deserve to be able to profit from. Uh, it's important to recognize the value of journalism. The business model may change, but the need for journalism uh, will not. We'll get to more of your comments as, as time goes on. We have to remind you right now that Friesen Brothers on March 5th is getting set to open its 15th Alberta location, a family-owned grocery uh, a series of uh, grocery stores in 15 Alberta communities as of March 5th. They've been family-owned for more than 60 Years, uh, Friesen Brothers takes great pride in supporting Alberta producers. It's why they only feature Alberta beef, pork, turkey, chicken, Alberta milled flour, and their famous sourdough. I mentioned to you an entire section dedicated to their world famous cinnamon buns in the new store. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned, as is Alta Moving and Storage. If you're thinking of moving right now, but the one thing that's stopping you is how stressful you know it's going to be. You remember you moved like 11 years ago and it was the worst week ever. Alta Moving and Storage wants to work with you to take that stress and leave it behind. They've got these pod style containers. They drop off at your place. If you need movers to help, they can make that happen too. You want to do it yourself? That's fine. And if you need short or long-term storage solutions or even those eco-friendly frog boxes and you're trying to find moving boxes at the liquor store, forget about it. Go to Alta Moving and Storage. You can check them out online. Just follow the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Before we get to our roundtable, let's take a really quick look at today's headlines. It's a slump for Canada's job market. Uh, the country losing just under 213,000 jobs in January following a drop of about 53,000 back in December. This uh, from Statistics Canada just a couple of hours ago. The January results were worse than expected, to be honest. Economists were predicting a loss of 40 jobs. As mentioned, it's almost 213,000. Uh, this is influenced by Ontario and Quebec. Uh, they combined for a loss of 251,000 total positions last month. Uh, notably, uh, both provinces enacting new restrictions to control the spread of COVID-19 back in December. Uh, meantime, in Alberta, highly contagious COVID-19 variants could force Alberta to change its phased reopening plan, says Premier Jason Kenney. Uh, telling business owners yesterday, two months from now, these variants might surge through the province. We could be in a deeper crisis. If you want to learn more about those variants, check out our interview yesterday with Dr. Lenora Saxinger. And can we show these photos, Sam? This is this is a shout out to our young Real Talk viewers, Hannah and Seth, who reached out to me. I love this. They're both in high school and they love watching Real Talk. I'm talking about the diamonds in the forehead. The diamonds in the Sam's going, what story are you getting to right now? This one, Hannah and Seth reached out to me and they said, Jespo, we're loving the show. We're telling all our friends about it. These are the next generation of real talkers. They said, are you going to cover the story of Lil Uzi Vert? I said, what? What's this deal? 
a $24 million, so says the company that sold it to him, a $24 million pink diamond embedded in his forehead. He just revealed this on his Instagram account on Wednesday, told his fans he's been paying for it since 2017, says it cost more than his Bugatti and his house, and said it's almost 11 carats. Wow. All right, let's get to our Friday roundtable. Maybe I'll ask them how they feel about that. Excited to welcome these three to the program. This is the first uh, edition, the first manifestation of what we're going to call the group chat roundtable. These are three personal friends of mine from different walks of life. We communicate every day on a group chat. We keep each other honest. We keep each other inspired. And sometimes we put each other in their place. It's a real thrill to welcome to the program. Catherine O'Neill, the CEO of YWCA Edmonton, Harmon Ken. Dola, a lawyer in Edmonton, and Jarrett Campbell, who I don't know how Jarrett wants me to introduce him. He's involved in politics, he's involved in real estate, and he's never shy in opinions. Uh, to the three of you, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for having us. Catherine, why don't we start with you? We, we, we've just been talking about journalism in Canada and, and, and broken business models and, and what the big conglomerates are having to do to survive and and what the scrappy little startups are doing as well you you spent uh, many years as a well-recognized reporter with the globe and mail doing national and international journalism covering wars covering politics when you take a look at the landscape of where newspapers are at these days uh, we saw that campaign yesterday with the blank front pages they're calling on the federal government to regulate the big digital players what does the future of journalism look like to you it's grim. And, you know, your story, I actually got my start in daily papers at the Toronto Star. And I'll, I'll remember as an intern, part of their training was they would walk you through the day of the life of the newspaper. And at the end, you would go to the printing presses and they would say, and that's why you can't be a second late for filing your story, because these guys and, and women cannot get the papers out to um, our readers. But those days are long over. And I think that campaign yesterday would have had a lot more impact if they had made their homepages go blank because that's where people are getting their news right now. And, and one other thing that when I listen to Jeremy's interview is it really goes back to trust. Um, trust really matters. Uh, journalism is only as good as how much you trust it. And, and, and I think papers over the years, and I did my master's thesis on just internal, uh, kind of structures that are set up at papers called ombudspersons. And most newspapers, including Post Media, went, got away. They, they threw it out the door as a cost-cutting measure. And those are really important systems to be in place to check the journalism that was happening, to build trust, and to make sure the connection between the reader and the, and the newsroom was strong. So it's been many years of this perfect storm, and uh, I'm really very concerned about the future of these these newsrooms uh i'm gonna i'm gonna recognize the sanctity of our group chat so i'm not gonna take comments that are made in the group chat and put them out for public consumption but i will note that Harmon and jc saw did not see eye to eye it didn't seem on anything yesterday on this story so Harmon, why don't you go first what to, i'm gonna let you two put out here what you choose to put out but 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 i'm hoping that you'll do us the service of, of understanding why you don't see eye to eye on this with jc well, th thank you, Jaspo. And, and I'm just going to start by saying that, you know, JC is, is usually always wrong. Uh, <laughs> frustrating that, you know, I have to play the role of educating him. Um, and it's, it's a burden. It's a burden 
Um, and it's one that I have a lot of difficulty with because because he doesn't know how to listen. And, and but wow. and, and that, it's reflective of mainstream media in this country. The mainstream media in this country does not listen. These newspapers don't listen to their audience. And so, you know, I mean, Jared really reflects um, some of the, the problems we see uh, with these newspapers. I, there's been a growing number of Canadians that don't see themselves reflected within um, a lot of these newsrooms, whether as journalists or even within the content of what is being printed. And that's been a huge struggle. We've seen, you know, reports come out about our state broadcaster that's been publicly funded and the lack of diversity that exists in those newsrooms. So here we are, we've got um, essentially a business that's failed to adapt to technological changes, business model changes in Edmonton alone. I mean, when you talk about journalism or you talk about particular areas of journalism, let's talk about sports journalism. 15 years ago, um, Edmonton was a hotbed for analytics research when it came to hockey. And we've still seen, you know, the, the, the major dailies in Edmonton fail to adopt to what people were talking about and engaging with when it came to that particular area. They stuck with, you know, reporters who were out of their depth when it came to a lot of those things, who denied or did not create space for those types of discussions. Um, and I think that, you know, that one area, you know, sports journalism in, in you know, in North America is at a great place. I mean, one of the best known journalists out of Edmonton is Sirit Sohi, who writes for Yahoo Sports. Ten years ago, Yahoo Sports is not a platform. Um, the Athletic, which is, you know, a source of great uh, sports journalism, is, is doing phenomenally well. Uh, and we have local Edmonton writers who write for them. They may not be writing for the, the, the daily but they're out there and people are consuming them and that's where people are going to. Um, so for me, you know, there's another aspect of this, which is, you know, the ethnic language or kind of more of a diverse media that just doesn't enter into the conversation when we're talking about, you know, support from the government or bailouts. There's, that's a huge other area of thriving media in this country that a, a lot of us are, are forgetting. I mean, just a week ago, what we saw in Canada was, Boznews.org, which is a, a small little startup um, on a Substack, exposed uh, a, an interview that an MP in Brampton had done yeah. in, in Punjabi language. Once that story, you know, it was translated by Boz News from Punjabi to English, and all of a sudden, within days, uh, he was actually kicked out of caucus for really problematic statements. So there's there's good journalism being done around this country. It's not, it, you know, ultimately, I'm not sure why we need to protect a, a failing business model. Like Jeffrey said, there's great work that they're doing. We need to help support these startups, not these legacy business models. JC, I would imagine you just agree with everything Harmon said. We'll just go back to Catherine now, or? <laughs> um, you, are we going back to Catherine? No, uh, no, no, no. Harman's, no, Harman's, <laughs> you know, Harmon's very smart, right? And he listens so well that he he referred to uh, Jeremy as Jeffrey. Listen. <laughs> Oh, uh, so well, so um, that 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 tweet sh- kind of shows you a little bit of the dynamic of how much how well he listens. So, um, you know, and it's I love this topic, right? And, and there are a bunch of different layers. And I think Harmon brought up a few, you know, sort of really good points about there is good journalism and there's stuff that can happen um, in a world with the internet that couldn't happen before, right? You think about you know sort of there's this nostalgia of legacy media, you know, the days of. You know, the Edmonton Journal in the mid-90s having this ability to send a reporter and deep dive into a story for a couple of weeks. And that was the kind of stuff we miss. But I think we forget that, you know, there were institutional sort of problems and, and representational and diversity problems at that point in time. So the nostalgia needs to be sort of limited, 
right? By who was allowed to say things and what they were allowed to say. So, um, you know, and, and so that was a very good point. Um, you know, and to the larger point, I think that there, you know, what makes this hard is that journalism fits into this sort of strange um, place in our society where, you know, it, is it purely private, right? You know, everybody can say what they want to do. You know, hey, guess what? You got to fight against Facebook. That's what this is. But there's also this recognition that, you know, this is sort of the fourth pillar of, of government, right? Like we need journalism to hold government to account, um, to get better governance, to, to ask some of these questions. And so there's a whole bunch of things going on uh, in that, right? And I think even, you know, if you, if you uh, listen to Jeremy, and Jeremy brought up a lot of really good points, but it, it sort of, to me at least, showed how unsatisfying a lot of this is. He goes, you know, it's so laughable that these, that these you know, these groups were, were fighting this thing, right? And, oh, look at that. And he used an example of post media doing something that he d- disagreed with. And I'm certain that, you know, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail would not love to hear that their entire pitch was bad because post media is bad. Um, you know, and then he goes, you know, uh, oh, well, you know, I took government money as well. So taking government money is a good thing. Apparently, um, you know, he identifies the, the Australian model and but immediately, you know, colors it by saying, oh, well, Rupert Mur- Murdoch supports that. So maybe it's not so good. And what I was left with is a whole bunch of unsatisfying answers. Right. And, you know, there is this question, too, about newsrooms and, and sort of the state of journalism. And I would ask that, you know, let's take the current players out of here. Is there a place uh you know, for a newsroom in Edmonton in this current environment. And I don't know that there is. And so if there isn't, then what is the solution? Um, the Australian model, right, where you say to Google and Facebook, you guys have to pay us so that we can hire journalists. That is a model. What's the alternative? Like what, how do we, right? If we can't trust closed media to have a newsroom here and everything, who can we and how can we? Because I think it's important. And I think that, you know, when I look at some of the coverage in Alberta, when I think about some of the coverage in Edmonton, it's it's my like Jason Kenney passed 50 bills in the last two years. We don't even have 50 journalists, right, to, to, to look at these things. What is the model? How do we get to something that we can support? KO, you look at yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm because that's such an urgent issue. Like I think I think we're laughing at any, you know, it's we we do fight on the about this uh on our group thread, but the thing about this, it's an urgent issue because to have a healthy democracy, and we we all know this, you need a really healthy um, fourth estate to be able to hold people to account, to shine bright lights on very dark issues in our society, um, and to spread the word about things that are happening in our community. And professional journalism matters. It just doesn't fall out of the sky. I went to university for six years to do my craft and and to learn and to and to and to do what I was doing at the Globe and, and the Toronto Star. So. I, I'm very concerned about just the future of where we're going to get our information from. And Jesperson, the fact that you have to, you have credible news sources you go to um, that matters because imagine if those went away tomorrow, how could you, you know, where would you be getting your information and what could you trust? So again, at the root of this, it's trust and mainstream newsrooms have lost an incredible amount of trust. And I hear everything you're saying, Harmon, but I don't think we just throw it all away and say, okay, it's over. We've just got to just have these, just an independent field and it's, and it's a survival of the fittest. I really think people, it really does matter. And I think if people take a step back and go, where do I get my information? I hope everyone kind of goes to different sources. It's unhealthy to live in a bubble and to not really look at different sources and d- different details and do your own due diligence on what you're taking in news wise. Catherine, I totally agree with you, but I'm also some of the sources out there are are deplorable uh, 
in their own right. I mean, I don't even want to name some of them, but like everybody knows their like lunatic uncle that gets his news from that website and shares it around and people believe it. I mean, you know, I don't even know how to frame the question. Harmon's giggling, but yeah, you- I don't think those people. I'm saying credible news sources. There's a lot of credible news sources. Well, yeah, but how do you but how do you define credible? Well, and that's this is the this is the question of our time, and media literacy matters more than ever. We've never had more information, but we've never been so ignorant. You know, the fact fake news could take hold as quickly as it did shows that people are drowning in information, and we really need those professional journalism journalists, uh, professional newsrooms, and I'm not saying old legacy newsrooms, I'm talking just newsrooms, where people come together and help and help pull together what's important and are very transparent about what they're doing to uh, when they're putting up that information. So it's not an easy thing to solve. It's been a it's been a slow car crash happening. I remember when I started at the star, it was in the early 2000s, I could see it coming. Uh, I actually, there was one terminal that we all lined up to get our, you know, to check the internet. And I just remember thinking something's, but everyone else, you know, you'd be out, everyone else had access to the, uh, you know, obviously to the internet. So it was just this really antiquated, out of touch, kind of slow to the, to the game kind of approach. And I'm not saying we have to step in and save them, but as a community, as a society, we have to realize that when it's gone, it is going to be incredibly dangerous for our democracy, for our society, if we don't have information we can trust. Sonny uh, on our live chat says, why isn't anybody talking about how all major mainstream news is owned by foreign investors? Uh, Kim says Alberta's investigative journalists are working harder than, than than they're ever paid for, whether they're independent or part of mainstream media. Ryan says, I admire all journalists who are still doing what they can to keep this important profession alive. He says, I got out on my own a few years back, says Ryan, uh, says he worked at Global. He says, I miss the industry, but not the job insecurity. Uh, Wally says the model is on us, the reader. We need to use a variety of sources. We need to compile information, sift through it to decide what's true. Wally says, I trust news more often when I read it from several good sources. I mean, that's that's a great point. But but ultimately, it falls in in the lap of the of the person of the individual. Right. Um, This we we could segue. I I told the three of you wanted to talk about 10 different stories. I mean, we could we could segue anywhere on this. I want to talk about the farmers protests in India, Harmon. And one of the things that I'll note here is that probably nobody in North America was made more aware of it than when Rihanna, uh, the pop star, tweeted about it. That was probably, to be honest, the first time it was on a lot of people's radar. This is literally one of the biggest stories in the world right now. Take us into it. Real talk for covering this months ago, um, you know, when when this issue first popped up in Delhi, I think it was, you know, 60 something days ago that Ryan, you and I actually spoke about this to give uh, the listeners of Real Talk some context. But yeah, Rihanna broke India. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it's been very interesting to watch uh, a lot of the insecurities of people in India when it comes to anybody looking and taking a lens to how they're treating peaceful protesters. What we've seen in the last several days, I mean, the, the basic context, context is that farmers are fighting against bills that were introduced by the Modi government without consultation that don't provide any support. Majority of farmers in India are small and marginal farmers. To put that in context for listeners, you know, a lot of people uh, in Alberta are familiar with farming. These people have 
two to three to five acres um, each. That's 70% of them. So we're talking about very small land holdings. And, and so as you can imagine, they're very vulnerable to any type of, um, you know, increases in corporatization, taking away some of the power that they have in co-ops and, and, and the like in, in the systems of procurement. But really the story becomes about, you know, them trying to peacefully protest and then being oppressed by the state and met with state violence. So in the past several days, the government of India tried to forcibly remove the farmers from places where they were protesting in and around New Delhi. Um, they've erected barricades. Uh, they've you know picked up journalists. So there's and this wasn't a story until there's actually a video of a very good journalist who was doing a story into police uh, conspiring with government hired goons to attack the protesters. So he had, you know, kind of put together some evidence and video of, of that, and he was picked up and put into jail. And what the government has just done is to exacerbate that, which is, you know, blocking out the internet from all the sites around the protest. Um, you know, they've now started to censor accounts that are reporting live from the protest. But at the same time, they're now starting to amplify pro-government messaging through celebrity. And that's where Rihanna's tweet and bringing the eyes of the, the world to this issue has really put the Indian government into a defensive position because it's, you know, I, I, India as a, as, a, as a culture really looks to celebrity for a lot of, you know, their guidance. And so when Rihanna tweets about it, and then we've got Greta, and it's been amazing to see the reaction within the, you know, the Indian media, which is she's a paid tout. Um, they burned her effigy in the streets. Yeah. Like, this is things that you would never see uh, anywhere else. And so, I mean, it well, just except goes maybe to Alberta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just goes to the degradation of democracy within the Indian state. You know, we've seen the decline of an independent media. We've seen the decline of uh, judicial independence. We've seen the decline of freedom of expression. And it should bring a lot of concern to Canadians, not just of, you know, um, Indian descent, but also our relationship as a country with a foreign government and a government that, you know, we've signed intelligence sharing agreements, a, a government that's shown that they don't really care for the same human rights and the same democracy, democratic values that we as Canadians believe in. Um, but, you know, it, and all of this has done is it's helped to actually, um, you know, give the farmers protests a shot in the arm. You know, you've seen more and more people starting to join and where it started in Punjab, we've actually seen, you know, a ton of, you know, intercommunal um, solidarity. And, and, it, and, it, and, the, and it's actually gone, you know, kind of um, within society as well. You've got landowners with workers um, who have joined in. So that's the basic context. But I mean, you know, with Rihanna now breaking this whole thing, like she is now the story in India. Like, it's hard for me to give people the context for this because like she's everywhere there. Greta, after she posts about it, is everywhere. The, they're, they're talking about filing charges against them. Um, the, the Delhi police has filed charges against Greta for tweeting about this. So, JC, I mean, you're, you're politically minded. You've advised politicians in past and advised campaigns. I mean, to, to what extent should the Canadian government, should the federal government insert itself in this? And, and to what degree can we expect that it would have any influence? I mean, what's the responsibility here of uh, and when I say local, I don't mean local like Alberta or I don't mean Western Canada. I'm talking federal governments. Canada, the United States, the UK, Australia, what role do other governments play here? Yeah, I think that this is this is a bit of a watershed moment, right? And this isn't something that 
um, suddenly came up, right? There has been this move to right-wing nationalism for years, right? And I think that um, India was often, you know, it's the world's largest democracy and isn't this a wonderful story and let's not look too far into it. And um, when you thought about, you know, sort of global geopolitics, uh, China sort of lived in a, in a space of, you know, here is a, you know, a, a large country that's growing, that's going to be, you know, trying to increase their, their influence. And, uh, you know, I think that what we'll, what we'll realize in, you know, our lifetime, at, you know, as we look at sort of demographics and how it's, how it's looking, China is going to peak in population in the next 10 years and, and they are rapidly aging. And I don't know that a country that's doing that is going to be a, a major geopolitical threat. India, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. India, you know, by the time we're old, old, uh, India is going to be the largest country in the world by like double, right? It's going to be massive. And so the rise of a, you know, as Harman said, a, a country that doesn't respect human rights, a country that does not sort of share uh, our values of sort of equality and, and, and equity, that's a huge concern, right? And I think that this sort of goes back to what should we do, right? You know, and, and I think there was a time um, decades ago, right, when we would be a little more active, right? We, you know, the, the, and I say we as sort of this global Western countries, you know, we would step in there. And I think that we need to start looking at that, right? You know, there's a threat here. Uh, and how can we, uh, as a sort of global community, you know, you know, look to, look to shift that, right? Because uh, an India that is the world's largest democracy, right? It, it is a very good thing for the world, right? And very good thing for a lot of the people that live there. So uh, I think we got to do something. You know, Canada is a little bit stuck because at the end of the day, we're 36 million people and we don't have a lot of influence, right? We rely so much on the United States uh, and the EU to to push these conversations. I hope they do. Um, you know, what Canada can do is, like, he said, like, like Harman said, we have an intelligence sharing agreement with this country. We probably shouldn't have that. We should probably be a lot more skeptical about this government. Um, and we should also be very cognizant of what kind of human rights are being violated there, because the one thing Canada can do uh, that a lot of other countries can't is we can welcome people here from everywhere in the world. Right. And, and if if the farmers in Punjab are um, under threat, uh, hey, move to Canada. We got lots of space here. We got lots of farms. Let's go. Uh, uh, Catherine, I'm, I'm going to come to you, I promise. But I know Harmon's going to want to respond to that. I can tell by the look <laughs> on his face. So we'll get to you in a second. K.O. Harmon. Well, you know, and I, I know JC, like, I think it'd be some great points talking about, you know, um, how we need to start to reevaluate our relationship with the government of India. And what we've seen, you know, historically, Justin Trudeau has been very soft on autocratic regimes and um, authoritarian regimes, sorry, uh, you know, like China. But we need to start evaluating India the same way. The, why, you know, ultimately, the way people perceive the trip that Justin Trudeau does to India depends on kind of how you look at these issues. A lot of people think it was a disaster from the perspective that, you know, uh, the Indian government didn't meet with them. He was dancing around. He was prancing around. He wasn't getting anything done. No, the reality is the reason why other people look at it as a failure is because he failed to condemn India's atrocious human rights record. He went and entered into an agreement to share intelligence. It, and yet he has, to some extent, for some people, redeemed himself when he actually stood up for human rights and for peaceful protest. He's He became a huge um, icon for a lot of the people there on the ground when he was one of the few international political leaders and, uh, you know, prime ministers to actually support the right to, for peaceful protest. So for a lot of them... You know, Justin Trudeau is a leading figure when it comes to, um, you know, the international stage. Yet 
and this comes back to the decline of, of media in Canada. You know, Canadian media jumped on a bunch of tropes from a foreign uh, country and, and a media that is, you know, much more compromised. I mean, you look at um, how India's uh, uh, press compares to, you know, other countries, you'll see that they're not a very free press. And so yet here they were repeating the same misinformation, which then creates confusion and actually smears the sick community in Canada. And that, and that's one of the reasons why the mainstream media in this country is dead to me. It's been dead for a long time is because they've not actually done the work to understand the nuances and issues like this. And, you know, coming back to it, I think, you know, for Canadians, this is important for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, as JC mentioned, yes, dealing with a foreign uh, country, you need to understand, um, you know, more about that country, but at the same time, what does our role on the international stage look like as Canadians? You know, if we want to go and stand up against, you know, China, well, why are we not doing it with other authoritarian regimes across this world? And, and we've seen the continued rise in degradation of democratic rights and values across this world. And it's a concern and it's something that we all need to be worried about. Um, Catherine, uh, fake as is watching in this morning and he says, uh, oh. Catherine O'Neill is doing an awesome job at the YWCA, but I love it when she talks media that from fake as uh, let me ask you this bigger picture though you know we're, we're talking about you know canada taking a hard line with india or we're talking about human rights violations i mean realistically you know i mean i had talked to senator doug black earlier this week and he says ryan he's being critical of the trudeau liberals he says ryan we were trying to source vaccines from china from china ryan and i'm going Buddy, we've sold like 50% of our oil sands assets to the Chinese. We've sold basically like half of the Canadian businesses to the Chinese. Every single household of every single person watching Real Talk right now has stuff imported from China. Uh, to me, it was it was kind of a I like Senator Black, but it was a weird dog whistle for him to be blowing. Um, you know, we sit here and we say Canada's got to take a hard line on human rights violations. So what? Shut down trade with China. Shut down trade with India. Stop selling armed vehicles to the Saudis. I mean, we profit from this. Like, how, you know, in your mind, what's an appropriate and realistic? You know, we don't want to sit here and say, you know, I wrestle with this. We sit here. What do we want to say? Alberta's small potatoes and we shouldn't fight for ourselves. No. You know, Canada's not a major player, so we shouldn't fight. No. I mean, how do you how do you sort this out in your mind? Well, I'm, I'm concerned a lot of the non-action is because of the fact there might be a spring election looming. And I think that mm -hmm. Trudeau's got a lot of different fires right now that he's tending and he's probably saying, I don't need to step into this, which is not an excuse and it's not a reason to not be a leader. And to Harmon's point, you know, <laughs> this is a huge global issue that the world needs to really pay attention to and, and come together as a community, uh, as a community, and and say this is not acceptable. And like the fact, you know, if, that there's not a free press. The fact that it's been going on for three months, and it took Rihanna and a tweet to truly wake the world and India really up to how how far this has gone is it's it's just unacceptable. And um, I know we're going to talk about the election later, but I, I truly do think it goes on to the fact that true like that our our federal government has just very distracted right now, also looking at having this possible spring election and is just not doing its job globally. So very frustrating because this is really something that everyone should understand. And I think Harmon, like in our group text, like we've known about this since it started. 
Um, but I know that a lot of people in Canada have, don't, this is a new story to them. And I hope people get educated about what's happening in, in India. It's a country of about 1.3 billion people. It matters what's happening in India right now. Yeah. And like JC said, growing in in both population and, and prominence and influence, to be sure, economically and otherwise. Uh, back with these three in just a second. Uh, Jason on the live chat right now says, please tell me that Jesperson's not using that red dry erase marker to write on paper. Jason, I'm happy to pull back the curtain here and show you this highly scientific i know i don't mean sort of talk over anybody here this is going to get really technical um i don't want to get too technical too but this is the, the red marker is is for this and this is how i keep tracks you have jason circled because i want to mention him i have i have fatima uh written down because i want to note that that she says that everybody has to watch hassan minhaj uh interview with uh, or, or conversation on modi and then here i'm this is reminding me of all the all the, the ads that we've got these are all of our sponsors and our partners and i strike them off as i read them so i, I know it's very technical and very scientific how we how we operate sam's just going like oh my goodness uh so this it's is a how, good system it's a, it's a I, good it, sometimes if it analog systems are the best ones if it ain't broke don't fix it and so this allows me to roll in hot right now into my mention on saint albert and sherwood dodge to remind you that no matter whether you're looking for for something economical reasonable something you got to you know fill up with gas once a month while you make your way around the city the jeep compass or whether you're trying to fit your family into an suv that gives you the best bang for buck like the brand new seven passenger grand cherokee or whether you want to drive like the hottest whip on the luxury suv market that grand wagoneer that's coming out this year they're bringing it back after years off the market totally reinvented your best selection in the province of alberta when it comes to the jeep brand is at saint albert and sherwood dodge and right now they've got financing options that make a jeep purchase maybe more readily available than you might have thought so go see scott and his team at sherwood and saint albert dodge also want to give a shout out to daryl and his team at westworld computers for more than 40 years they've been family owned and operating in western canada if you want the newest Mac lineup, they've got you covered, but maybe you say I'm a little more budget conscious right now. I need to upgrade my my watch or my phone or my laptop, but but I'm looking at maybe something gently used. They've got the refurbished Mac lineup. They've reloaded all the original software and it comes with a warranty at Westworld Computers. You can find them online under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. And a quick reminder, if you'd like to save 70 bucks next month on your power bill, natural gas, or even internet, go check out parkpower.ca. Whether it's commercial or residential, Park Power is your destination when it comes to supporting local in those markets and using the promo code 2021-realtalk at parkpower.ca they're going to take 70 bucks off your first bill our thanks to park power for that this is our group chat roundtable, and we're thrilled to be hanging out with Jarrett campbell harman candola and Catherine o'neill ko will let you tee this one up a spring election a lot of people thought that i mean hey you look back at john horgan in bc and, and many people said the prime minister may be kicking himself for not calling a federal election maybe even last spring or or, or maybe in the fall um I'm talking to some people right now that say the way that the, the, the polls are going and the pressure they're facing over vaccine procurement, he may have missed his window to call an election and try to get a majority government. Uh, Catherine, we'll start with you. Did he miss that window? I think he still has a bit of runway uh, because there's a, a, supposedly a, a bunch of vaccines that are supposed to show up at, at the end of February. But I think he's in deep trouble, and I know that they've been busy lining up candidates and doing training. So they've, they've, they've really been working behind the scenes of the Liberal Party to be ready this spring. But if, if they get to March and this still looks like the cluster that it is, 
um, I, I, I think he'll hold off. But he's starting to kind of, you know, the fall, who knows what the fall is going to look like in Canada. If the vaccine rollout, rollout doesn't go well, the economy continues to shed jobs like you just uh, talked about in, during the headlines. This is, he's, he's starting to get in deeper and deeper. So I, I, uh, I don't envy the Liberals right now in the fact that they don't really have a lot of great options. But I still think, like I said, a bit of runway, but he's really running out of room. And if he doesn't make a decision soon, he'll have to put it off. Jarrett, what do you think? Did he miss his window? Um, you know, I really think that there's a couple things going on. One, this vaccine question goes, you know, it was so great a few weeks ago. Now it's so bad. And, you know, we've got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. We've got the AstraZeneca vaccine that could both get approved. They've got, you know, those are tr- more traditionally manufactured. Uh, the story of what the vaccine rollout looks like could be very different a month from now. I think that's going to be a huge factor. Um, the other interesting piece for Trudeau is so the, uh, the federal NDP has been doing fairly well in fundraising and actually just recently paid off their 2019 campaign debts because they had gone into a bunch of debt on that. And, uh, you know, that's going to matter, right? Because they have been fundraising well. By the time you get to next fall, you've now got uh, much more of a two-front war, right? If you're the Liberals, you're trying to pull votes from the left from them and pull votes from the right from the Conservatives or from the centre, probably more from the Conservatives. Uh, and it goes, you know, maybe it's better, right? Like if the, if the NDs don't have a lot of money and you can run a campaign and you can steal their voters because they can't get their word out, uh, you might just pull the trigger, right? And and like Catherine said, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, what does the world look like in six months? Um, you can imagine a scenario where we all have vaccines and the economy is booming and everybody's so happy, right? But you can imagine a scenario where it's not and you might go, hey, listen, the, the polls, uh, and I, I know there's a poll that's supposed to come out this morning. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but they, they've been very steady uh, for the last little bit. This vaccine stuff could mess it up. But if you're sitting there, you're in March, maybe like end of March, whenever they, they uh, introduce the budget, they want to introduce the budget, uh, late March, early April, and you're still ahead in the polls, the NDs don't have any money, vaccines going okay, you might just say, hey, you know what, let's do it. Let's get this, let's get this done. We don't need to, to risk what six months looks like. Harmon, I feel like I want to give you the same question, to be fair here and let you chime in, but I'm also curious to know as, as the conversation develops, do you think, I mean, where do you think the federal government uh, stands like does it have a leg to stand on with regards to vaccine procurement you know some people say that they've been doing an absolutely uh, horrific job it's a terrible job Canada's ranking in the 30s when it comes to people that are vaccinated you know we're not manufacturing here in Canada other people are saying give your heads a shake that's not even realistic like you know the vaccine didn't even exist six months ago Canada's not as much of a major player as we'd like to think we don't have distribution networks here in the country w- where are you landing on the fairness of of talking vaccines, and do you think that's the number one election issue if the writ were to drop tomorrow? I think, you know, when you look and you, you heard uh, last week that Canada was calculating, you know, vaccines based off of you know, five um, doses of vial and it was getting sent over and, you know, in, in the calculation of six doses of vial, like simple, simple issues like that, that highlight some basic level of incompetence that reinforces for some Canadians, the incompetency of, of the Trudeau government, I think will really hurt them. And if those, if those kind of narratives are able to kind of continue um, through the procurement process, I mean, it, it makes it really difficult for, for Trudeau to ask people to trust him with, you know, another four years um, or try to give him a majority government. I think one of the really interesting factors here is you can't underestimate Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. Aaron O'Toole, you know, coming into the actual CPC leadership race was not quite, not highly heralded. 
Um, but, you know, from insiders, we knew that he was going to run a very strong race. Um, and he did. You know, he's shown us he's following the, the Patrick Brown model of, of building a large tent. You know, um, he, he was able to get a lot of support from, you know, kind of more of the fringe elements of his party. Uh, yet, you know, last week when he's kind of exodus uh, Derek Sloan, uh, you know, there's a clear effort now to try to expand um, into the center. And I think there's a there's a path that Aaron O'Toole is, is following that will prove to be potentially successful in, in what we've seen is, you know, he's, he's been, he's done, um, he's consistently improving in the polls. I mean, he has a lot of work to do, but I wouldn't underestimate his team. They've shown themselves to be extremely capable, um, you know, very, very highly competent people on, on his campaign. But yeah, and you, you know, now you're seeing a resurgent NDP, um, you know, Justin Trudeau has got a lot of, a lot of challenges, you know, there, as we kind of come into the spring, people's frustration with COVID and, you know, a lot of, you know, the hope was the vaccinations uh, would roll out very smoothly. And because it's been kind of stop and start, I think there's frustration there. KO has, has the, I don't know about resurgent NDP. I think, I do think I, I would congratulate the federal NDP on paying off their bills. They had a huge hill to climb and they had a pretty ambitious uh, payback schedule to be able to do it. I mean, they had sort of remortgaged their property and everybody knows all the stories there, but I, I'm not, I, I guess, and, and maybe I'm insulated here in Western Canada, but I don't know that I've seen anything really from the NDP, the federal party that I would classify as inspiring or gaining ground in, in, in any sort of uh, political momentum context. Um, okay, I'll, I'll ask you to comment on that, but I'm more specifically interested, and I don't mean to discriminate against parties, but I, you know, I think the last election, generally speaking, was perceived to be the conservatives versus the liberals um, under new leadership, under new management, as the sign might say, have the conservatives been been gaining or holding or losing ground uh, with urban voters, do you think, under Aaron O'Toole? Um, to the first question, I think I think the NDP are still in a lot of trouble. They paid off their campaign debt, but they still have mortgage uh, debts, um, um, some debts within the party. So they're still struggling financially. It's better than it was. Don't get me wrong. And I think Anna Mae Paul, the new leader of the Green Party, um, is also, you know, eating their lunch quite a bit <laughs> on the left. And so they've got they've got their own challenges on the left. And, and I'm with you. I don't think they've done, I haven't heard like Jake Meet Singh and the party. I haven't really heard much from them lately. And, you know, the election always changes that. He did an incredible job during the election, getting his message out on social media. So he, he's a wild card for sure. And then on the conservative side, I agree with Harmon. I think that uh, I wouldn't underestimate that party. Um, Aaron O'Toole in recent, he's had a few big missteps, but if he keeps laser focused on vaccines and the economy and jobs, um, I think that will speak to people across in urban and rural settings because it's a year, we're almost a year into this and it's really devastated many communities, many families, um, and people are looking for hope and leadership to get out of this. And if they think that the liberals just don't, if they're not going to trust them to do it, who else are they going to trust to take this job? So. Like Carmen, I think that they are. I, they, I would. I really think they're they're one to watch here. And uh, and I know a lot of people are saying, oh, they did have a few missteps. That kind of people just thought, okay, they're not they're not ready for prime time. I, I disagree. 
We've got a, a another member of our group chat here that's that's chiming in. Um, it, our friend Jenny Adams says uh, there's zero chance. JC, I'm going to throw this one to you. Uh, she says there's uh, zero chance. I'm hoping this is on the record because uh, I'm going to read it. She says zero chance. This is a competitive election. I love Harmon's face. Uh, zero chance. It's a competitive election. The conservatives are out of touch on the energy file, on the environment file. Uh, they never think to the future. They're perceived as old white men. And Jenny says, and I'm the most conservative one out of all of us. Uh, wow, that is, I'm shocked. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not what I expected. Jenny Adams, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jared, what's your response, having just heard it? I, you know, uh, would I say in certain ways, and, and you know, are they out of touch? Yeah, but I'm not not necessarily the the, the conservative voter they're trying to get. Um, no, you are. You're exactly the conservative voter they're trying to get. I don't know, man. I live in downtown Edmonton. They're well, probably looking for suburban Ontario voters, right? Fair enough, but, I, for, but I'm for, ta- but I'm I'm talking like like a, a, a younger guy with uh, with a, a relatively brand new baby, and uh, you know, bu- <laughs> building a business. And I know that that you and your partner have just invested in kind of what you're hoping is going to be at least your forever home for now and all these types of things. I mean, I, you know, without sort of laying out your entire personal life for our audience. Um, yes. Geographically, you're maybe not their target, but demographically you absolutely are. Well, and he's a UCP apologist. Let's not forget. And you're a UCP apologist, JC. So. <laughs> wow. Low blow from Harmon. <laughs> um, anyways, you know, I don't know that that's, you know, the idea that we that this isn't going to be competitive at all. I don't know that the polling, I don't know that the last election would would show that. Right. You know, um, keep in mind that a conservative party under Andrew Scheer, who, uh, you know, was able to sort of miss the the net, the, the open net on a breakaway, uh, had the most votes. Right. Like this was this was a minority government. So, um, you know, are the you know, is the O'Toole government out of touch on certain issues? Sure. Right. But they are, they also potentially in touch on a certain issues and they could be right. And I think that um, campaigns matter. We don't really know, you know, not a lot of people pay attention right now and they're still holding well in the polls. Um, what are they going to roll out? You know, what is, what does that campaign look like campaign? This campaign is really going to matter. Uh, and to Harmon's point, right. They, you know, if they're able to run a tight ship, uh, you know, that was this, the, the Stephen Harper model, right? Like he ran a very tight ship. Um, and Andrew Shear did not do that right in the campaign. I just remember, um, early in that campaign, Andrew Shear getting asked the, the, the most predictable question in the world. Like, what do you, what's your view on abortion? And, and he just didn't have an answer. And it was like, did you not think this was coming? Did you not think that you were going to get asked this? Right. Has, has not, has every single CPC leader since, for 20 years been asked this question and he was like, Oh geez. Oh boy. I'll get back to you. Right. And, yeah. you know, and, and he still got the most votes. He still got the most votes. Right. And, you know, it didn't help that Trudeau's blackface thing came out, but welcome to the Trudeau government. What scandal is going to come up next? Right. It seems like they're on a bit of a schedule, right? It's like every few months you find something else silly. The Trudeau government does. Maybe it happens between now and March gives a gift to the conservatives. Maybe it doesn't. I am, I, I'm not betting that it'll be a, a blowout election. I would not see that coming. I I still am gobsmacked that the liberals won the last election, even with a minority after the blackface scandal broke. I'm, I'm still blown away by that. Jenny followed up. She says, yeah, it's fine if you read my comments, as long as you clarify that I'm talking about the GTA, the perception of the conservatives in the GTA, which I think is fair. Um, it's probably Dude, no. You know, can I jump in there? Because Jesperson, did you 
Ontario is getting just devastated by this, the lockdowns as far as they've, you know, my, my twin sister lives in Toronto and they, they, the kids have been out of school before Christmas and the, they're, they're in, it's a very different situation in Ontario and Quebec as far as, as this, the pandemic. And so a lot of businesses are going out of business and struggling and people are losing jobs and a lot of stresses that even though we are having problems, Ontario and Quebec are. So if you have a leader come in like an Aaron O'Toole or whomever and give some hope and some leadership on here's the way out of this, uh, I think that the liberals are going to be in deep trouble. Um, B BV on the live chat says that Jesperson underestimates Trudeau's popularity. Maybe, but if you look at who, and I'm speaking very generally here, um, but if you look at who Trudeau is popular with, most especially, you would think something like the blackface scandal would resonate very poorly and, and would resonate with great magnitude, um, you know, to people that are typically a little bit more progressive, people in the urban centers. He's, he has strong support with with many ethnic minority communities. I mean, that's the type of thing to me where I, I guess I was just a little bit surprised. Uh, as a matter of fact, Harmon, we haven't given you a chance to, to, to answer the, the question here. Um, one thing I think is worth pointing out before I go to you is it's kind of telling as well. When, you know, J.C. says, that, you know, Andrew Shear was ill-equipped to answer some of the most obvious questions. <laughs> that that comp strategist is now working for Alberta's premier. And, and I have to wonder if maybe that's part of the reason why Jason Kenney hasn't had a lot to say of substance on some pretty important files there. Uh, Harmon, what do you think an election looks like here and have the conservatives done enough to, to take back, you know, a majority government position? Yeah, I think my my take was that I expect Aaron O'Toole to be prime minister in 2021. Again, not, not saying that I personally endorse that. I'm just saying, you know, given how things are going for the Trudeau government and the, you know, O'Toole having a lot of confidence and faith in O'Toole's team to put together a winning strategy, you know, the way they won the CPC leadership uh, is an amazing story of confirming behind, challenging a, a, a very popular leader. But it does also go to, you know, again, we don't want to get into the dynamics of, of Peter McKay, but um, yeah, my, I, I think um, Aaron O'Toole is uh, prime minister sometime this year. All right. Uh, do, do you have it's 959. I asked for you three till 10 and I know you're all big shots and big deals. Can we go five more minutes? Does anybody have a, it's no problem if you have to go right now? Can we go five more? Harmon, you look stressed. Do you have a meeting at 10? Okay. Okay. Because okay. I want to ask you about the Proud Boys before we go. Uh, Proud Boys, uh, 12 groups added to Canada's terror watch list. I think it's 73 groups now uh, in total, just, just under 75. Um, JC, what's the significance of the addition? This group founded by Gavin McInnes, the founder of, uh, co-founder of Vice, uh, a former regular contributor to Rebel Media, now characterizes the leader of a terror group. Um, do they belong on that list? How are you sorting through it? What, what does this mean for people that have Proud Boys leather jackets hanging in their boot room right now um you know i think that this is the culmination and it you know it's funny how there's certain parallels right as we talk about media and what stories get covered and we and we we use the lens of india but you know there there's a uh a whole story about right-wing terrorism white supremacy that i think has really been underreported uh, for a long time. Right. And I think that there it's because there's some really uncomfortable questions when you get into it about, you know, do they have support in the military? Do they have support uh, in police services? You know, things like that. And, you know, I think that what this is, is the, you know, as again, uh, media landscapes have shifted and people have been able to tell stories that maybe wouldn't have been told not too long ago. Um, there's been this growing recognition that, 
you know, there's some really bad stuff happening, right? In in these, uh, you know, I know uh, like Mac Lamaru, right, from Vice, right, which is kind of ironic. You know, he would he did some really good reporting about two years ago, on um, the three percenters or whatever they're called and the whole thing. And so, um, you know, I think that it's good. It's good that we're recognizing that there is a problem here, right, and that there and that. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of that classic meme on the, the internet, right. Where it's like, you know, the skin color and whether or not you're a, a, you know, a terrorist or a freedom fighter or whatever the, the, the thing is. And it's, it's this growing recognition that, uh, there is terrorism happening, um, in right wing, predominantly white circles and that we need to be cognizant of it and we need to be aware of it. And yeah, like let's terrorism's terrorism, right. And it doesn't matter what your underlying beliefs are or or who you are or where you came from um and let's start all sort of putting it into the same category yeah if you take it and, and you're bang on there jared if you if you take a look at the groups added uh the majority of them or at least a significant number of them uh based in white supremacy neo-nazi type uh perspectives Harmon, what did you make of the addition to the list yeah i, I think it's um you know needed in in a lot of ways uh if we go back and just to jc's point you know mac lamaru has done a phenomenal job kind of penetrating some of these groups but there's also uh members uh who are out there guys like uh kurt phillips and his blog which i've been following for many many years um you know the arc collective or anti-racist collective um where they've done a lot of good work to expose and penetrate these groups to kind of bring what is a very virulent ideology um to the public and you know there's been a conversation in the past several years from minority groups in terms of you know being targeted especially um people in the muslim community and so those communities are you know celebrating um that there, there has been this addition to the terror um, terror list. I mean, ultimately, as a member uh, of the Proud Boys, you know, you're not going to face criminal charges just off the bat because you're a member. But you know, this does give um, agencies, uh, you know, enforcement agencies, police agencies, certain powers to deal with, you know, financing of the Proud Boys and their activities, and some, you know, greater surveillance. Um, I think powers and and so you know, it's a step in the right direction. But it's a conversation that Canadians need to have about, you know, how do we counter. Um, know that level of extremism and especially something that for a lot of people has gone unnoticed for a long time Catherine, we'll sign off i want to ask you about a new uh, podcast project that you're working on but first um i do want to get your take on proud boys on the list you know like those guys said that it's long overdue and i think having and again it goes back to having a free press being able to shine a very bright light on this really dark corner of our society and the rise of white supremacy in our communities. It's really, really concerning. In Alberta, we have a huge problem with it. And I think by if, by putting them on the list, giving folk, uh, the police a lot more powers to, to investigate and to build cases against these people, it's really, it's long overdue. So um, I'm really glad it's been done. It might be a little bit late, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a welcome thing for sure. Tell us about searching for Azina. This is uh, a very, very cool project that you're working on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ryan. So searching for Azina, for folks who haven't heard of it, go to searchingforizina.com. It's a grassroots project um, being organized by YWCA Edmonton, Parity Yeg, and some current and former uh, Edmonton City Councilors to commemorate the 100th anniversary this year of the very first woman uh, being elected to Edmonton City Council. Her name was Izina Ross, and most people have never heard of her. So 
We want to tell the story of Izina, but also the, the 30 other women who have followed in her footsteps in the last 100 years. And the women who have you know, yet to follow in her footsteps. We've never had a woman of color at Edmonton City Council. We've never had an indigenous female councillor. So these we've never. So we want to shine a bright light on that. It's a year long campaign. We have a nine part podcast and lots of virtual events. And uh, I think what's so striking for me as, as a former reporter is the fact that we've only had 31. I didn't know that data just you know we just had never put it together there's been 238 men since Edmonton became a, a city so the number is quite stark and we've only ever had one woman reach the mayor's chair so we've got a lot of work to do not just as as the YWCA and Parity Egg but as a community to say if we want better representation we need to have our council look like the community it's serving and women are the majority in our city and so if you want to get involved with the project, again, go to searchingforizina.com and check it out. We always are taking volunteers. And I want to thank you, Ryan. You've donated the use of your studio for the podcast. And, and Sam Brooks is our actual producer for the podcast. So uh, many thanks for just your small role in this. Well, it's uh, it's yeah, I'm uh, we're happy to do it. We're proud to do it. I'm super excited about it. You're doing an amazing job. Um, and I won't speak for Sam. I'll let him speak for himself in just a minute. But um, very proud of it. And it's an important listen. And and we'll see what the, the implications are. You never know who you might inspire KO in the next few months, quite honestly, uh, leading into this fall's municipal elections. Very cool stuff. Catherine O'Neill, uh, former journalist with The Globe and Mail, of course, the CEO of YWCA Edmonton. Harmon Candola is a lawyer at Shuri Batcha LLP. And uh, Jarrett Campbell, a strategist involved in real estate as well, the principal at Aspen Advisory. Thanks to the three of you for joining us for this inaugural, not the last, group chat roundtable. Have an amazing weekend, you three. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. You bet. Uh, yeah, Sam, you have been, uh, we haven't really talked about this a lot on the show, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it's kind of my little secret, I guess. It's, it's, it's your little secret. <laughs> like but, my but, very known secret. But, guess, but now yeah. that Catherine blew the doors off it, we can talk about it. This searching yeah. for Izena has been a really neat project. What's it been like for you to have a it front has. row seat? Um, it's been a lot of fun to have a front row seat on this. Uh, episode two is coming out later this month. I can tell you we have a long conversation with uh, Paula Simons, one of our, one of our favorites around here. Uh, we get to learn about. Uh, Edmonton's first and second city councillors, and and I won't spoil anything, but it's a it's a wild story, especially when we get into who the second female city councillor we had in Edmonton was. Yeah, uh, she is a she is quite the character. Um, Do we, is, had, is Stacey Bratzel hosting all of them? Is that how Stacey Bratzel and Kim Ann Wilson are hosting? And all Kim of Ann them. Wilson, okay, yeah, got it. Co-hosting them, and so uh, Stacey and Kim and I sit in this room once a month with uh, with some pretty distinguished guests on Zoom, and we we record the pod, and then I I, I cut it together. Uh, I've had a few interviews. Um, former councillor Olivia Beauty is the voiceover off the top of the podcast and i've had not nearly enough time to chat with her because she's i've had amazing. her on a couple of recordings she is incredible she's she a force is, of nature oh yes she is so much fun to chat with so uh i've had a real blast working on this project and uh can't wait for you all to hear episode two in a right on weeks. so people can search for searching for izina we're going to get to your comments uh, in the chatterbox in just a second about what we've just been talking about uh real talkers i just you've got hot takes on everything and i love it because that round table was swerving all over the place and you were right there with us we're going to get to your comments right now though i want to remind you this is the time of year it's the worst time of the year for your furnace to kick out and and you know what that means 
it means that that's exactly when it's going to happen. If and when it happens, knock on wood that it doesn't, you're going to want to remember Todd's Mechanical. Uh, they handle furnace repairs at any time, including when the temperature plummets like it is right now. Todd's Mechanical, the online reviews speak for themselves. Don't take my word for it. Well, do, but follow it up with your own research and see what his customers are saying online. Todd's Mechanical, plumbers that are proud to keep Edmonton warm and dry. Plumbing and heating is their wheelhouse. Write this number down. If you don't need them today, you might need them tomorrow. You might need them a month from now. Todd's Mechanical is a good friend of the show, and you can reach him at 780-499-7598. That's 780-499-7598. I also want to let you know firsthand how proud we are to be partnered as a family with uh, the quality dog food makers at Grand Dog Essentials. We've been feeding our dogs Moses and Monroe their quality raw food for years now, and we're thrilled that they're here as a real talk builder. They're a family-owned business, two generations working together, providing weekly doorstep delivery of their quality raw dog food to Edmonton, Calgary, and the Red Deer area in frozen 40-pound boxes packaged in one or two-pound tubes. Depending if you've got a Chihuahua or a Great Dane, they'll find the solution for you. You can find them on all social media platforms, most especially Facebook, Instagram at Grand Dog Essentials. You can order online at granddog.ca. And if you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll take 10% off your first order. So there you go. On the chatterbox, after our conversation with our group chat roundtable, you can tell why I love those three, right? Sharp cook. And there, there, there's more. There's more in the group chat. So every once in a while, when we bring that roundtable back, it'll be different voices. Uh, and I know that uh, that's one that'll bring great value to the show all the time. Sandra says, you know, Justin Trudeau, when it comes to I, I made the comment that I said I was blown away that they won the election after blackface. Um, and I still am. And uh, Sam, I mean, it says something about the conservative strategy, quite frankly, doesn't it? Um, uh, Sandra says uh, Justin Trudeau represents stability and human frailties, which many people can relate to. Um, I don't know about how people can relate to Aaron O'Toole. Um, Conservative politicians, generally speaking, I think at least the prominent federal leaders have had a challenge when it comes to relatability. Um, and you'll look back and you say, oh, like like what was Paul Martin relatable to people? And like, no, I'm not saying he was. Was Jean Chrétien relatable to people? Maybe. I don't know. But, you know, people look back and I'm, I'm, the immediate examples that come to mind right away, like, you know, Stephen Harper dropping his son, Ben, off, who's now working with the Alberta government, uh, dropping him off at school and shaking his hand. And people went, oh, my God, like who shakes their son's hand? You know, and then other people said, well, you're piling on the Harpers and it was probably nerve wracking for them and they didn't know what to do. But the fact of the matter is that stuff resonates. Right. And so what did they try to do with Andrew Shear? They. They, 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 they put them all around the kitchen island and they showed him, you know, making lunches with all his kids, making school lunches. Right. But, you know, it didn't resonate with people because I think they were making mayonnaise sandwiches on white bread or maybe that was just a joke that I read. But for some reason, it didn't resonate. So so you look at what they're doing now and they're, they're putting out pictures of Aaron O'Toole with his family. And what they're trying to do is make him relatable. He's a family guy. He understands. Now, Aaron O'Toole has had, has had a career in the Canadian military. He's not a lifelong politician. And maybe that will resonate with Canadians. And that'll be their priority. Harmon, you heard there, he believes that he's Canada's next prime minister. And we'll see. Time will tell. Um, Lorraine says, you know, we got to talk about how rebel media was named in that recent two billion dollar lawsuit for for slandering uh, voting machines in the United States. This is this is the Dominion story. If you want to uh, search it, it couldn't happen to a better guy. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Ezra Levant is going to use this to, to fundraise. He's he's going to he's going to take money from senior citizens across Western Canada on this. But it could be an interesting story to keep an eye on uh, that Dominion story. Um 
what are some other comments here I wanted to get to on the on the election? Because a lot of you had had a lot to say on a spring election and, and who you think might win or who you think might stand uh, the best chance. Uh, Wally says, you know, you got to be more intent on provinces than federal elections. You know, he says we really overestimate, put over importance on federal elections. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, uh, Corinne says you're talking about terrorism. Terrorism is terrorism. You know, many people thought that it was a faraway country. The recognition that it's right here in Canada and that terrorism has many faces uh, is important. And I agree. Absolutely agree. I mean, how do you define terrorism? You know, it doesn't start with the color of someone's skin, right? It starts with how they employ terror to advance an ideology. And that fits a lot of action that we see even right here in Canada. I want to get to some emails here, but... uh, I do want to make sure, and I'm scrolling back. You can tell I do, when I do this live, it gets a little bit sloppy, but I want to make sure that I do justice to the chat here. Um, Heidi says, I think a huge problem for conservatives in general is that they are such big tent parties um, by trying to please everybody, fiscally, socially, the new wave conservatives, red Tories. Uh, they end up pleasing nobody. That from Heidi, that's interesting insight. Uh, Wig with says, I think that conservatives are just going to keep sending out conspiracy theories till the election, you know, the great recess and and, and Strauss, isn't that Klaus Schwab, I think is what you mean, uh, is going to be all they talk about. No platform, only crazy. I saw Alberta's premier. Jason Kenny, I'm not going to get too into this, but it's just he just can't help himself. Uh, he just can't help himself. It was a few weeks ago he was talking about the the the, the young entrepreneur that he talked to. She was she had like a uh, what was it like a Thai food restaurant or something in a food court in Calgary. I'm going off the top of my head. I don't remember the exact details. But he said, you know, he was telling this story and he said she came to me and she was weeping and saying, Jason, please save my business. She went on the record after reached out to reporters or a reporter reached out to her and she said, well, I wasn't crying and I wasn't pleading. But yes, he did buy food from me. So there's some question about the accuracy of the story. But you remember when Premier Kennedy's talking about it and he says and she was she was weeping and saying to me, please save me. And then she had just escaped from Venezuelan socialism like he just couldn't help himself but slipping that in there. And the other day on Facebook, Alberta's premier's talking to talking to, to, to his grassroots and, and he was talking about COVID-19 and he's attempting um, to sway people away from COVID-19 conspiracy theories. Right. And he says this is not a conspiracy theory. You know, you need to take COVID-19 seriously. This is not a conspiracy theory cooked up by Klaus Schwab with the IMF, the international, I hope I'm getting the name right. The international monetary fund, Klaus Schwab, the great reset, the book, this, that, like, can he just can't help himself invoking the IMF into conversation about the pandemic in Alberta? Just can't help himself. Um, and, and you may wonder who he's getting his comms advice from. Troy says, I don't agree that Aaron O'Toole has any chance of becoming prime minister. Um, but I do want to sample whatever strain it is that could make somebody think that. Um, <laughs> Just a reminder, this is a purely self-serving exercise. If you are an illegal cannabis retailer today, make sure you ask for Joy Botanicals. Um, (laughs) It's owned by me and my brother in a group. Um, uh, What else here? Uh, James says the conservatives need policies that actually deal with climate change. Um, I don't see Aaron O'Toole winning without major policy shifts. Um, Dylan, let me touch on this. Dylan, I think is, is misunderstanding what I'm saying here. So let me spell it out. And I love that Dylan's an engaged viewer. I'm not cracking on Dylan, but Dylan says, how many people accidentally have proud boys jackets? It's concerning how Ryan keeps referring to it as normal. First of all, there's nothing fucking normal about having a proud boys jacket, Dylan. 
Okay, what I'm saying is, just like I said yesterday, what do you say to the little old granny that recognizes the Proud Boys logo because her grandson or her son or her husband have been wearing that vest or wearing that T-shirt around? And granny's going to say, just like they did with the yellow vests, just like they did with the truck convoy to Ottawa, granny's going to say, no, he's fighting the carbon tax. Well, what about the soldiers of Odin? Oh, we're not racist. We're the soldiers of Odin. All we're doing is we're, we're, we're fighting against Sharia law in Canada. Or we only we have a problem with the United Nations and the cabal. We have we have no we're not racist. We have a problem with Sharia law. We're fighting against Sharia law. What I'm saying is I am not normalizing the proud boy jacket. But what I'm saying is a lot of people that have been recruited to these movements and that participate and that now find themselves either getting completely carried away. I know for a fact that Albertans were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th participating. I know for a fact that some of them are now back home and and starting to quietly brag to their friends they were there because it's reaching us on Real Talk Loose lips are sinking ships and just wait because the FBI is working these files and people can be extradited and there will be charges laid and you're not insulated and there's zero sympathy. But all of these people that thought that they joined the and Dylan, I know because they reach out to me more, more prominently in my previous employment. Because at that radio station, that's where a lot of those folks feel at home. We heard from a lot of soldiers of Odin and three percenters and proud boys. They would talk to me and say, Jesperson, you just don't get it. You're not willing to fight for Alberta. You know, they'd they'd find their involvement in the proud boys as something to do with pipelines or as some sort of statement against the carbon tax. That's why they're at all these rallies. Why does it make sense for proud boys to be participating in something to do with Alberta energy? It doesn't. But there they are. There are the soldiers of Odin. Right. These carbon tax rallies. And I'm not sitting here either advocating or not. I'm not even taking a position on carbon tax. I can if you'd like, but we'd be here for the rest of the day. I think in some circumstances it fits. I think it's devastating for agriculture. I think we could reexamine it. There should be different. Yeah, we can talk about that. But it has nothing to do with the carbon tax. Right. So then why are all these people attracted? The Venn diagram, the overlapping circles. If you want to take a look at people that are concerned about Sharia law, the United Nations and the carbon tax, chances are they either have one of these jackets or they know somebody that has one of these jackets. Prove me wrong. So I'm not normalizing it. I don't think that it's not a big deal. In other words, no double negatives. I think it's a big deal. But I do think that there are a lot of people in particular in Western Canada, in particular in Saskatchewan and Alberta, that know people that are affiliated with these groups that up until this week were not on the terrorism watch list. And that's a big deal. We talked to Mabin Sheikh yesterday. He just escaped extremist ideology himself. He went undercover with the RCMP. He was an operative for CSIS. He's now a professor of public safety at Seneca College, and he talked to us about the road out of extremism, about getting involved in a community because you feel accepted and you you feel at home. This is how guys become skinheads. This is how people wind up wind up in the KKK because they felt accepted. Right. It's how people wind up. You take a look at Islamic communities. How did he end up strapping a bomb to his chest and going in here? Or how did this guy wind up going into a synagogue and and killing people or how it it. Oftentimes, if not always, starts because they felt ostracized. 
They, they felt like they didn't have a place. And then all of a sudden they found that they did. Right. I mean, go watch American History X. Watch any of the it's fiction, but not not entirely. Let's get to some of the emails, and, and, and these are ones that you reached out to us. This is not trash talk. That's coming up in a few minutes, but, but a couple of, of emails I wanted to get to. One of them is actually from a family member of mine. I was thrilled to hear from her this morning. She lives in Germany, and she watches Real Talk. Uh, but first, this from Anne. Anne says, Ryan, I was really glad. Yesterday was, yesterday's show was a little bit, little bit different, wasn't it, Sam? I, we we kind of went on for about 45 minutes. Yeah. The backstory of, of interviews and segments and how we put them together and how they resonate I love with us. that segment. Yeah, we won't do it every day, but oh, we don't need to do that every day. But it, it's like we have I don't I don't want to speak for you, but I think that we have a real commitment to transparency on this show. Totally. And and if something is on our if something is on our audience's mind, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to sweep it away. Nailed so, it. You yeah. nailed it. Uh, this show is so transparent that I come to you every morning through plexiglass um, and says uh, I watched the comments that were rolling by Ryan, um, both in your commentary yesterday, as well as during your interview with Janice Irwin and Vitor Marciano. I also watched the comments roll by during your interview with Senator Doug Black. And I found that many of the comments um, were obnoxious and immature. Like, why is it OK to refer to Senator Doug Black as an old white guy? Is that not incredibly rude toward a guest of the show? And says, I found some of the comments uh, to villainize both men um, without reason. And regarding Janice Irwin's interview as a woman, I find it more demeaning to suggest that a woman can't hold her own against a man in a debate. I agree with you. If Janice had an issue with how she was being treated, she would have spoke up. And says, I found myself thinking if uh, I, I thought this audience was supposed to be a big step above the likes of how Twitter, Twitter users treat each other. And says, anyway, I don't often agree with you, Ryan. It can be a challenge to listen to this show. We have many different points of view. I'm likely not your average listener. I'm an engaged Christian that shapes my worldview. I'm a pro-life advocate. I believe that the modern day feminist movement is more damaging to women than it helps. I'm slightly right of center and I'm very pro small government. But I appreciate your show because you do seem to work hard to put different points of view on your podcast. It seems to be important to you. It is. She says, that's why it's important for me to listen to everybody and to try to find middle ground. We seem to have this in common, and that's why I listen. Thanks for real talk. That from Anne-Marie. That's amazing. Thank you. And here's, this is a letter from my cousin, from Lisa. Lisa and I have not corresponded uh, in quite some time, at least not at length. Um, she's in Germany with her husband and her, and her beautiful kids. Uh, at Black Forest Academy, which is a private school and a, and a lot of kids that are educated at Black Forest Academy, their parents are in the mission field. They're around the world spreading the gospel. And when I saw her name, Lisa, show up in my inbox and the subject line said Chrissy Stroop and, evangel and evangelicalism, I went, oh, boy, what's this going to say? Lisa says, I'm loving the show. She says, I catch it every day via podcast in Germany. Um, and as Adam, her husband and the kids and I prep to move back to Canada this summer, you are my crash course on all things going on in Alberta. She says, I just finished listening to Wednesday's show with Chrissy Stroop, and it pushed all of my buttons as Jespersons and as Canadians. You and I have many shared experiences in our upbringing and in our insight into the evangelical world. It's been quite an experience to dip into the American version via association working at an American Christian school here in Germany. I've become aware over the last several years of several extremely disturbing themes. 
For those in the missions world, it's common practice to raise money to fund your work overseas. That's the case for most of us here at the school. Our staff, not paid by the school, or rather each individual raises support for monthly donations in lieu of salary. And what I've discovered from close friends and colleagues here is that the majority of the American-funded missionary world and the American Christian School Institution is funded and supported by predominantly pro-Trump ideology. Pre-Trump, this would simply just be called fundamentalism and the authoritarian rule of the moral majority. She says, you know, think of James Dobson and focus on the family and, and Jerry Falwell. Now, during Trump's reign of terror, many of my friends experienced reprimands and threats to their financial support when they voiced opposition to Trump in any way whatsoever. One friend told me last week she wishes that she could post a book recommendation on Facebook, but she knew it would get her in trouble with her evangelical supporters. The book, by the way, is called Case by by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, That's she says a well-researched book about racism in America written by an African-American woman. Another friend who belongs to the same denomination that you and I were brought up in, which is the Christian and Missionary Alliance, um, has been yelled at. She says the American version, by the way, has been yelled at by several congregations when telling stories from the front of the church about her work with Palestinians. Because pro-Israel is the right and it's the ideological position, the only position of evangelicalism and fundamentalism, apparently what meaning anti-Palestinian, says Lisa Another friend's been hassled by evangelical supporters when she liked a post. She clicked like on a post around social justice. One of our teachers was warned by an evangelical supporter when he posted a picture of him explaining recycling in Germany. The warning was beware of the religion of environmentalism. With all of these friends and colleagues, essentially their livelihood is on the line. If they do so much as like a post or talk about recycling or talk about the wrong people group or recommend a book. She says this is craziness. And then there's the Christian school baggage. American Christian schools, as Chrissy Stroop mentioned on Real Talk, Real Talk came into being in order to remain segregated. That has never been fully addressed nor reconciled. Currently, the largest organization that accredits Christian schools worldwide, ACSI, is practicing segregation in a new way. Ever since the Supreme Court Bostock versus Clayton ruling, they've joined forces with the Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF, to mobilize legal strategies to counter this civil right, to counteract it as it impedes their religious freedom. Sexual orientation and gender identity is now what desegregation was to many conservative Christians during slavery and the civil rights movement. And if I can break away from Lisa's email for a second and remind you about what the private schools are fighting against most in Alberta over the past five years, it's gay straight alliances. Back to Lisa's email. Very few evangelical organizations or missions in the United States have spoken out against false claims about election fraud. Some believe it. Others entertain the possibility. Many conspiracy theories run rampant. Climate change denialism is the default setting. Young earth creationism is tolerated and still taught in schools. She says, let's remember that schools are where we ought to learn the truth. Chrissy mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant mission in the U.S. Their missionary organization, IMB, sends a ton of missionaries all around the world. We have several staff and students at our school with the IMB. And recently, many Southern Baptist Convention college presidents have declared critical race theory as anti-biblical 
and they teach their students as such. She says, in a nutshell, that explores the underlying systemic racism in society and in institutions. By calling this antithetical to a biblical worldview is inherently and openly white supremacy. It's also worth mentioning that this denomination was founded in order to advocate for slavery so Southern Christians could keep their slaves. It appears that not much has changed from their beginnings besides methods and terminology to adapt to changing culture. She says, so from the Black Forest in Germany, I'm grateful for this show and true real talk. Keep it up, cousin. That from my cousin, Lisa. And I appreciate that. The team at Clean Air Club wants you to be able to save money and breathe easy. And that's why if you check out cleanairclub.ca right now, you're going to find out how easy it is to get fresh, brand new furnace filters dropped off right at your door. You're going, furnace filters? Does my furnace have a filter? It does. And it needs to be changed. So go to cleanairclub.ca right now. Let them know what size of filter you need. It's stamped right on the edge of it. You'll see it right there on the bottom of your furnace. Most likely that's where it is. And then your work is done. They drop them off at your door. You replace them per the schedule they give you. The next thing you know, not only are you saving money, but you're resting easy, breathing easy, knowing that your family is healthy in part due to something that you did to stay on top of it all. That's thanks to Clean Air Club. We also wanted to remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping for more than 20 years has been helping people reimagine their outdoor spaces. You invest in your life, your quality of life. Why not, why not roll that out to the outside? Now, whether that's flower boxes, planter pots, or a new retaining wall, something even bigger than that. Heck, waterfalls, they build them. Go to landscapeedmonton.com to view their work. They don't have to see you in person. You can talk over Zoom. They can use Google Earth to see your property and start to map out the work they could do. That is Eden Landscaping at Edmund at landscapeedmonton.ca. And of course, you know where this is going. This is where Sam gets ready to turn up the volume a little bit. The team at Local Waste Services wants us to remind you each and every day here at Real Talk that they're ready to fight for your business. They love to talk trash. That's why they've been so effective and so efficient going up against the big faceless garbage guys, those multinational corporations. Whether you're a small family restaurant, a clothing store, or a big shopping mall, they've got a solution that fits you. And they want to talk to you on a first name basis as well. It's how they approach all of their partnerships. All you need to do is reach out to Chris or Lauren at 780-242-9746 or check out localwaste.ca. Local Waste, each and every Friday, brings us a little something we call Trash Talk. All right, extended trash talk today because you will not stop sending us emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com like Wendy, who says I'm writing to express my anger and frustration that Canada is left abandoned by our supposed allies. I'm talking about vaccine distribution and I'm directing this at the United States and the European Union. Canadians were upset that President Biden reneged on the Keystone pipeline, but we should be focusing our efforts on pressuring the president to allow Pfizer to honor Canadian contracts. 
contracts, our long-term health, and our economies at stake. It's outrageous we have Canadians jailed in China for two years thanks to honoring our alliance with the U.S., but it's infuriating as well that we lost Iranian Canadians when that flight was shot down and continue to go at it alone seeking answers and justice. This is barely covered by American media because it's just Canada. She says, I'd like to remind our European allies that Canada meant business when we sent 10% of our population to fight in World War II. Ask the people of Normandy if they feel that Canada has maybe earned some loyalty here. I'm sure there are countless examples of Canada serving its allies in honesty, generosity, and loyalty because that's who we are. I hope our PM, our ministers, our ambassadors send strong reminders to the U.S. and Europe to return loyalty during this critical time. That from Wendy! Next one from Barb who says, hey, we got to put a halt to intended changes, changes that have now been implemented to 911 dispatch in Alberta. The government works for us, not the other way around. Their job is to make our lives better. I can't wrap my head around what went into this decision. A $7 million savings for a government that makes a billion and a half dollar rounding errors is insulting. I confess making this move during a pandemic has me banging my head against the wall. Barb, don't hurt yourself. She says people's lives are at stake. Access to emergency response is critical. Raise your voice and fight for the people. That from Barb. How about this one from Alex, who says, why is this provincial government so hostile toward teachers? On Monday, January 11th, we were told what a good job we're doing. The next day, we're told we have zero control over our pensions. The, the government tells us school's essential for the economy. I think it follows then that teachers are essential too. We are valuable. We are needed. We are busting our butts to keep kids safe, making sure the curriculum's taught. We're towing around COVID, hoping we don't get sick. What's happening to our pension is unreasonable, unfair, and demoralizing. That from Alex. What about this one from Kathy, who says, Rural ambulatory care, Ryan, has me reaching out. Why is this government so hell-bent on this unilateral decision negatively affecting our lives and the people that voted them in? I do have to wonder why this government waits till damage is done. Why do Albertans have to rise up in anger all the time before they take meaningful action? This administration is mind-boggling and confusing that from Kathy how about this one from Lisa Lisa says I'm so angry all these emails start the same. I've written my MLA three times this month after never even thinking of doing that in past. His assistant had the audacity to return my most recent email about coal to point me toward that coal hard facts website. I already had the pleasure of noticing that on Real Talk. What a gaslighting pile of garbage. Putting the word fact beside your interpretation does not make it true. Albertans have changed and we're not going to take it anymore. That from Lisa and this, I saved the biggest fire for the final word of real talk for the week this from scott who says i'd like to get something off my chest one of my favorite things to make these days are cinnamon buns and in all the time i've made them not once have i used raisins raisins are gross if raisins were any good they wouldn't need to be surrounded by more delicious ingredients to mask their existence if a friend offered you an oatmeal cookie that had concealed slimy raisins in it at that first bite would be so disappointing you wouldn't even be able to call local waste services fast enough to pick up the garbage you just threw that sad cookie in. Scott signs off a Patreon contributor, aka your boss, Ryan. Scott! I love it, Scotty. Thanks for your support on Patreon. Thanks for tuning in to Real Talk. Thanks for sending us an email, and thanks to Local Waste for this trash talk! We'll see you Monday.